The following is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. Hey, what's up? This is Jeff Cobb, and you're listening to Keep It A Strong Style. Yo, this is Rich Ladder from One Nation Radio. This is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. We present to you the Ace of Podcasts, Keeping It Strong Style. Let's go. It's the Ace of Podcasts, Keeping It Strong Style. Covering New Japan, they ready to hold it down. Jeremy Donovan and the young boy Josh. Come and hit a job out in Barrio the Frost. From Tokyo Dome over to the G1. Social Suplex is the network where we can get it done. I'm a chiller. And let them have it Cause this is just an intro Keeping the strong style Six stars from the get go Boy Yeah from Tampa Bay To the Tokyo Dome This is Keeping It Strong Style With your host Jeremy Donovan And the young boy Joshua Smith And thank you for listening Welcome to Keeping It Strong Style The ace of podcasts On the Social Suplex Podcast Network Jeremy Donovan here With the young boy Josh Smith on today's show, we'll be covering all this news, answering your questions, and doing week three of the final countdown. You can support our show by subscribing to the Social Suplex Podcast Network and keeping it strong style on the podcast app of your choice and leaving a rating and review. You can also get all the podcasts and columns over at socialsuplex.com. Check out our Pro and Tees store, prosandtees.com slash socialsuplex. That's where you can get your official Keeping It Strong Style t-shirt. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation by visiting socialsuplex.com slash donate and clicking on the donate button under the Keeping It Strong Style logo. This week's episode is brought to you by NJPWEXT, the only browser extension for NJPWWorld.com with features like dark mode, improved translations and layouts, custom and shared playlists, synchronized viewing parties, and much, much, much more. It takes NJPW World to the next level. Visit NJPWEXT.US today for details. Absolutely. Uh, NJPW uh, EXT, like literally, and this isn't even part of the ad read, like, those are just a few of the highlighted features of this freaking service. But like when you actually dive into it, like do a deep dive, you're like, holy fuck. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like honestly, like I, I don't know L- lately, like every now and then I have to jump on new Japan world when I, I'm not near like my browser desktop. So I don't have access to the extension and it's like night and day. It's so much better with, with the extension. And um, yeah, man, I mean, somebody, Danny's doing like God's work. <laughs> yeah, shout out <laughs> like, to our man Danny. Like so, someone from uh, New Japan needs to pay this man. That's all I'm saying at this point. <laughs> like that's how good it is. Yeah. Well, we have uh, very little bit of news this week. We've got tons of mailbag questions, and like I mentioned, we got uh, week three of the final countdown. Dude, I am loving doing the final countdown like just loving it uh this really is a passion and a a labor of love and the thing that i can't wait to do is when we finally finish it and compile all this uh i know we talked about last week but yeah like we're gonna cut every single one of these segments put them into one uh file for you guys it'll be one episode i don't know how long it'll be four or five six hours i don't know maybe not that quite long but you know we're gonna have it time stamped and, you know, if you're ever like, hey, I wonder uh, what happened in the finals in 2002, you'll be able to go find it. 2011, you'll be up, it's going to be right there. It's going to be really awesome. 
And um, the only thing is, before we move on, because I, I know we're going to say it later on, but before we get too deep in this episode, we cannot find 2005 and 2008. Those are every, literally the only two we're missing right now. Every single other episode that we've been looking for, we have found, thank God, including... 1999, which I thought was never going to happen. <laughs> yes, we found uh, 1999. And so, yeah, some interesting background to that file. And for all the matches that we reviewed so far, I've put together a list on a Google Doc that has links to all the matches that we've watched so far. So from um, 88 up to this week, we're doing 03, and I will update that doc every week. Right now it's in our Discord channel, Social Suplex. There's a, a Keeping It Strong style thread with the link there also i'll be tweeting it out and sharing it so that way you guys can keep up and follow along and watch these matches that we're checking out absolutely but um any, anything before we get in the news or you just want to jump right into it man yeah i think let's uh, just jump right into it um, okay so uh let's start with the first thing new japan's biggest overseas bout bullshit complete and utter bullshit the worst recount they've ever done i, I haven't watched it yet so oh okay actually it's not that bad. It, it, it's pretty good but like they they don't say Kenny's name. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> they talk about the biggest overseas matches that they've had in in recent modern antiquity. No mention of Kenny Omega. And the only time they mention the Young Bucks is when they mention the fact that they got beat by God in San Francisco. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> talk about controlling the narrative. Yeah, the heat heat trail, brother. Bro, they, they, they mentioned the freaking um, – I actually didn't finish the whole thing, just to be honest with you. Uh, I, I actually was enjoying it, but I need to get – like, I didn't finish it. But uh, they start off almost um, – they start off talking about the uh, tournament in 2011 to crown the Intercontinental Champion. So they bring up MVP. They mention him, you know, beating Toriano, all that. Then they jump to the U.S. title tournament, and they mention the whole tournament. And they talk about the tournament. Don't mention Kenny Omega. And they don't mention that Kenny Omega won the freaking tournament. <laughs> it's crazy. Welcome to Pennyville. Uh, it, it yeah. Um they it, it's good. Like you should check it out. It's good, but it is just it's real funny. They don't mention Kenny. Like he's persona non grata. Like that's the one when you know, when I when I'm thinking of like uh biggest overseas matches, I'm thinking of like excursion matches. So I was like, oh, they're gonna talk about I, I don't know, because I'm an old head. I'm thinking they're going to talk about, like, Tiger Mask in Madison Square Garden or Inoki at Shea Stadium. It's like, nah, they, they go straight into their most recent shit like they always do, which I'm fine with. But then they completely ignore Kenny, the Bucks, Marty, like, all that. Like, nothing that has to do with the Elite, which is like, I get it. It kind of makes sense, but it's also like, y'all y'all highlighted him. <laughs> all right. I mean, that's on y'all. But yeah, that's available on YouTube right now. <laughs> <laughs> also up on NJPW1972.com, we have uh, Toa Hanare's uh, part two of his journey back to action in his Warriors Road column. The free match of the week comes from Wrestling Dontaku 2016 IWGP Heavyweight Championship match. The champion Tetsuya Naito defending against the challenger, the Stone Pitbull, Tomohiro Ishii. Kevin Kelly has an interview up right now on NJPW World with Chase Owens. Huh, interesting. So, interesting. So, I guess, I guess they're letting their own people do their own interviews. 
I'm, I'm glad that they're, they're, they're an approved, you know, podcast <sighs> allowed to do interviews. This is cool. Oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't, I didn't want to bring it up, but it, it is what it is. Um, it is what it is. Um, this is not really New Japan news, but it kind of fits in the kind of current climate with things that are going on in Japan. So the planned DDT Peter Pan show, which is the biggest card of the year for DDT, was set for June 7th at the uh, Sumida Super Arena. And it was featuring Saitama. Saitama Super Arena featuring Kenny Omega. And it's been postponed. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's a big hit for DDT. I mean, that is their biggest show of the year. That's their Wrestle Kingdom. And you know, last year's DD or uh, Peter Pan did really well, uh, if I re- recall correctly. And um, you know, they they need it, so that's really unfortunate to hear that. Yeah. And then last piece of news here, um, kind of New Japan related. So tweet came out from a Twitter account at Unseen Japan site on April twenty fourth, saying that. Manichi has a write-up on what happened to a Colabo official bus cafe. The man who, who sexually harassed an underage girl was LDP politician and former MEXT minister Hase Hiroshi. Colabo has filed a petition demanding ad- admission and an apology. So, um, this is actually only the second underage sex scandal in pro wrestling this week that I've heard of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm, to be honest with you, I'm much less uh, aware of what's going on here. So I actually don't know all the details. I just know something happened, like allegations involving Hiroshi Hase. So, I mean, what's what's the deal? Do you know? Yeah, I mean, I really haven't been able to find much. I mean, a lot of the stuff is in, you know, Japanese sites and Japanese, like, news sites and blogs and stuff like that. And this, this Twitter account tweeted out in English what kind of was going on, but I really haven't seen much more but you know we've been talking about Hiroshi Hashi the last couple of weeks with you know the best of super junior stuff and you know a couple of weeks ago uh all of the you know Japanese promotions met with the government and met with Hiroshi Hase and now this story is kind of breaking and coming out yeah so I mean as we know more we'll we'll uh definitely like let you guys know but I'll tell you this um even just an allegation in Japan um obviously something like this can is serious in the states of course but the level of um seriousness in japan culturally when something like this especially for a public figure someone who's in service like say a politician it's a much bigger deal i mean we've our president was like talking about like grabbing you know you you guys know the deal and like he's still the president like you know but in japan uh uh-uh that kind of stuff does not fly so uh I don't know. I guess we got to f- find out. Like, I'm always someone who's, um, you know, I, I, I never want to, like, uh, victim blame or, like, diminish what's going on. But I also am always uh, not too quick to jump to conclusions until I kind of have all the facts or figures. So I don't really know the story yet. But um, if there if it is true, like, Hase is done. Yeah. Yeah. Like, pretty, like, seriously. Yeah, so you know, we'll I'll try and keep tap and see if any more stuff comes out and we get more details about the story. But I saw one of the group chats. Dan Coffin had shared something about this this week. I I just like was busy at work and I figured I honestly thought you'd gotten the gist of it. <laughs> no, I mean I'll, I, I, I guess this was a tweet that Dan shared was from this person. 
Ah, uh, gotcha. Yeah, I read something about it today, though, and you know, there's people saying it doesn't sound good. So we'll find out more. But yeah, that's definitely not good. <laughs> yeah. And that wraps up everything for the news this week. Very light week. There's no update on, you know, upcoming shows for New Japan and what the plan is. So the one thing I will say, they every day they're uploading more and more matches on New Japan World. A lot of stuff that should have been there already. A lot of stuff that's kind of rare. Um, they also, Kevin Kelly, like you mentioned, he's doing interviews with Chase Owens, different people also putting in, um, putting in a lot of like commentary work, uh, to uh, get some stuff in English. He's also doing the recount. So, I mean, their, their social media team is like hard at work. They're doing a lot of really good stuff there. Um, and you know, even like Chris Charlton, like he's hard at work with the, like you know, it seems like there's weekly or even uh, sometimes two times a week, like podcasts coming out for the New Japan uh, official English podcast, you know, which is cool. Yeah, so they're busting it out, getting a lot of content up there. I mean, they're not doing like a final countdown of every single Super Junior Finals <laughs> ever in history, doing 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 the deep work, but they're doing good. <laughs> but no, I actually, I've really been enjoying it. One, uh, one interesting piece, they've got a match from 87 up. It's Bam Bam Bigelow against uh, Inoki. And if you don't count the pre-87 IWGP title, uh, you know, the, uh, those title defenses prior to 87 then this is the first quote-unquote official title defense in iwgp title history which is kind of kind of interesting that they got that up there finally nice and, yeah uh, another uh, promotion that's doing a great job let's say partner of new japan is ring of honor ring of honor yeah they, I, I i was gonna say the same thing ring of honor is killing it dude they have uploaded all the stuff to the youtube honor club now they're putting a bunch of archive they're filling up all the years of archive stuff they're starting a podcast in the next couple of weeks you know impact's doing real good too yes 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 they are as well yeah the, there's like those are the two groups there's a lot of people doing cool stuff online but like for major promotions people that are putting out like new content that actually kind of matters like those are the two people that really stand out especially here in the states um you know, more so than even like WWE or AEW or MLW or you know any of the other like. Well, MLW they they're finally starting to digitize the original MLW Underground TV. Really? Which, yes, which features Satoshi Kojima's MLW Championship Reign, and that will be up soon on their YouTube. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff happening. So I mean, you know. Obviously, you know, we all want this to end and, you know, it's unfortunate, uh, you know, what's going on in the world. But at the same time, it's kind of given some of these companies an opportunity to kind of focus more on the digital side of things now that they can't really produce content in most cases. So that's it's interesting. Yeah. Ring of Honor is killing it, man. I mean, like every day they're put, I think they just put up the Daniel Bryan Morishima match, which is like my favorite Daniel Bryan match of all time. There was a match I watched, or I think I started watching, but I didn't finish it. It was I think I did finish it actually. It was Hanma and his partner at the time against uh, CM Punk and Cole Cabana. From, oh, uh, Second City Saints. Yeah, was it good? Uh, it was all right. <laughs> <laughs> have you have you seen the Morishima Daniel uh, Brian Danielson match? It's I been, mean, they, it's been a while, but yes, I have seen it. They they've had a they had a bunch of matches, but. Um, the one that I like, it's not the fight without honor. It's the, uh, 
it's I think it's the one where he comes back from injury or maybe he maybe he wrestles him with the eye patch. I can't remember, but it's 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 good shit either way. Yeah. All right, well, let's jump into the mailbag here. Got tons of questions from you guys. Thank you guys for sending in questions every single week, even with no, you know, current New Japan content to talk about. Appreciate it, guys. So uh, first from uh, Reddit user Grunty Dot, he says, if there are no more shows in 2020, what is your picks for match of the year? Uh, I mean, I think that's a, you know, there have been some really, really, really good matches this year already. And I think that most people would say it's, you know, not so easy to pick. But I know for a fact, just knowing Jeremy as well as I do, knowing myself as well as I do, I know we have the same answer. And I think it's like a pretty open and shut case right off the bat. Well, I don't know. I think it comes down to two matches. I don't think it comes down to two matches. I think you can, I think you have to like, quote unquote, discuss. But I think there's only one match that's really the right answer. And actually, if you want to be Honest, it probably comes down to three matches. Yeah, it comes down to three matches. It comes down to Hiromu Osprey, o- yes. Okada Ibushi, and Okada Naito. Yeah, and if you want to be real generous and someone is super inclined, they might even want to throw in that uh, Zack Saber Osprey match. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, honestly, I think for both of us, I think like it's pretty open and shut that it's uh, Okada and Ibushi. Yeah. I mean, the only real argument that I would really hear out is the impact, the environment, and, you know, the fallout of Okada Naito. Right. And I think, and, and the build to it. And the build, there are, I mean, the, the reality is if you go on cage match right now, you're going to see Okada Naito ranked number one. Um, and I think a lot of that just has to do with, like, the anticipation and the the atmosphere is one of the greatest wrestling atmospheres you'll ever see for a match and i think that really elevates it not to diminish the match the match is great the match is really 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 good but uh bell to bell top to bottom i don't think i've seen a better match this year than okada and uh abushi and that's including like a lot of matches from a lot of companies that have been really good (laughs) and i mean they they kind of blew their g1 match out the water which that match was already close to five stars in itself and uh, so, yeah, it's an incredible match, bell to bell, great story. Uh, yeah, best in-ring match, of, of yeah. definitely of New Japan. If you want to argue of the year, you know, I'm sure people will argue the, the Bucks against um, Omega and Hangman from um, the AW, last AW pay-per-view. That's a really good match. I mean, there have been a lot of good matches across the board, like in different companies. But, I mean, um, that's that's the one that stands out. You know, um since we're on the subject, let's just talk about this real quick. Who is your wrestler of the year in New Japan if you know if the year ends right now? I think it would have to be Okada. I mean, main evented two nights of the dome, two two IWGP title matches, two five star matches. Yep. And uh not to forget he had that really, really great match with uh Taiji. Taiji. Yeah. Yeah. That people kind of like slept on a little bit. I thought it was. I thought it was a really good match. Um, I think there's an argument for Will. There is. There's yeah, the Hiromu match, and then the the Saber matches. And you know, uh, just so you guys know, we're also keeping track of the excursion matches of the year that have occurred up to this point. And I'll tell you, every month since like November, actually, 
there've there's been a match of the year contender that has or or you know excursion match of the year contender that has involved Will Ospreay and it's always been the best match of the month outside of New Japan for that category. So not only has he like been killing it in New Japan but he's also been killing it just across the board uh outside of Japan. I mean, you look at like the Red Pro match with uh Saber, you look at the Dowie James match from MCW, the match he had with his girlfriend at the uh, No People Gate or whatever it was called, No Fans Monday. Um, him and the Ras- him and Chaos against the Rascals. Uh, yeah, like he's he's killing it. <laughs> yeah, no no surprise there. <laughs> but it is it is hard to uh, kind of you know compare, and then obviously like the matches we've talked about, like the match with uh, Hiromu and the match with Will uh, Zach Saber. So I mean, I think that'd be tough, but. Uh, yeah, though, though, I I hope that we get more of the year so we can kind of uh, weigh some of the stuff out. It's gonna be interesting once we get back to action. Yeah. So next question from Reddit user Highest Fly Flow has three or four questions here. First, he says, "Want to ask who you guys are bigger fans of: the Three Musketeers or the Four Pillars of Heaven? I've always loved all the Four Pillars. Even the crap matches are very fun." That's a great question. Um, I got to tell you, I think that there is overall more cohesive storylines or story, you know, character growth and development, like uh, like storytelling, when it comes to the four pillars. And you know, the match quality is much higher when you talk about the four pillars, especially their inter rivalries with one another. So it's it's hard to go against them. For that reason, I think I say the four pillars. But when it just comes to like my pure fandom, I've always been a New Japan fan. And even though their the trajectories, their careers are kind of parallel, they didn't they intersected at different points and then kind of like would diverge and then come back and diverge. They weren't always as interwoven, you might say, as like say the the uh, pillars of heaven were. But like I love the Musketeers, like. I love each individual run that those guys got, especially Hashimoto's early run and then like Mudo's late 2000s run. Like I love their work. I mean, it, it, it's hard to kind of compare the two. You know, it's like I guess one way I would compare it is like, and this isn't a perfect comparison, but like if you talk about like the brash, awesome characters of the WWF then you're talking about the awesome characters of like the musketeers. If you're talking about like the classic in ring, um, you know, storytelling of like the NWA of like Ric Flair, and those guys, then that's kind of closer in comparison to like the pillars of heaven. And that makes sense because the national wrestling Alliance kind of is the main in, you know, Southern wrestling is the main influence of like, uh, all Japan. Whereas like, you know, um, new Japan was always kind of more influenced by, you know, the Inokiism and it was very intertwined with like WWF in the seventies and eighties. So it's, it's hard to say, like, I like the pillars of heaven more for the matches, but I, I actually prefer the the characters of the Musketeers. Mm. Yeah. For me, I think, I think I've seen more four pillars matches than I have three Musketeer matches. And like you mentioned, yeah, the in-ring work of the four pillars is just amazing. And, you know, I've been watching the King's Road, walking the King's Road series and just getting a lot of history and background and, you know, been watching some of those matches. And, you know, Rich has been sharing a lot of kibashi clips in, in the group thread last couple of weeks. So uh, right now I'm leaning 
towards the pillars, but I definitely need to spend some time and watch some of the Three Musketeer stuff and kind of get a better handle of those guys as well. Yeah. Uh, so the second question is, can you tell us about the time when NJPW tried to incorporate Joshley, mostly JP, JWP, into their wrestling cards? Okay. So uh, for this question, I mean, I- I'll be honest with you. I don't actually know if anyone um, has like a concise version of any sort of quote-unquote story. I just know that there have been times where they've tried it and it wasn't necessarily like one individual time i know like in 95 ish they started uh kind of flirting with women's matches in 2002 they started doing it as well um i could be wrong here i didn't always know that it was jwp i know that they had had stars from gaia and uh stars from all japan women's um i actually try to look into the whole thing with jwp and i don't know much about it to be honest with you and that's just you know, one thing that I would like to do is do a little bit more digging when it comes to that and, you know, kind of because that's something I'm very interested in, especially just the fact that uh, when I was looking at this question and I was digging, I found out there actually was a tag match in the Tokyo Dome in 2002 for New Japan that predates the stardom tag. Mm. Yeah. So, like, there've actually, there's actually been a New Japan women's tag match that occurred at the Tokyo Dome on January 4th. Already, it happened to that, and Manami Toyota's in it, I believe. So, I mean, there have been women's matches, but it's few and far between. It there's not a lot of um, writing about it, so it's going to take a lot of digging. So, I, I don't have a concise answer for you, to be honest. Yeah, so we'll have to try and get some more research there on that one. Uh, we should look into. Uh, you have Lions Pride. You should look into see if Chris Charlton mentioned that at all. Yeah, I'll take a look into that. But we'll do some digging on cage match. We'll we'll find you know we'll come up with whatever we can find because that's a, that's a topic I'm very interested in. His next question the the question that defines the history of keeping it strong. Style, oh my god! Who is the mole in chaos? <laughs> um, clearly, clearly yeah. this is a rib. <laughs> yeah. Let's just move on. <laughs> uh, so his last question, he said, one more question since the recount just got released on YouTube. What do you guys think of New Japan not mentioning Kenny Omega at all? But saying I told it, you. But I say, told you. Saying the names of the Young Bucks. Initially, I thought it was petty, but after they said the Bucks name, I'm just confused. Well, if you notice, they mentioned the Bucks losing to mm. G.O.D. Mm. It's, it's hard to mention Kenny when he's beating when He's EG. always winning. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah. And I mean, if you think about it, like over the past few years, like what, what's like, if you had a, uh, like guess, what, what do you think is the biggest North American match that like new Japan has run? And I would venture to say, I guess you could, you can argue that it was Okada and Jay white, but we all kind of know that that card was drawn off the strength of like the idea of like the bucks mm-hmm. and the elite being there. I honestly think that the biggest match that New Japan has done was the Young Bucks against the Golden Lovers. Yeah. If you're talking stand standalone New Japan show. Yeah. Standalone New Japan show. People were invested. You know, there was hype around it. I mean, I don't have the Google trends or anything like that, but like that seemed to be the biggest deal. Uh, that was a bigger deal than, say, Kenny and Cody. It was bigger than the U.S. tournament. It was bigger than Cody and uh, Okada. 
Definitely. Um, it was bigger than when the G1 ran in Dallas. We were there, and I mean, it was awesome, but, you know, and it's hard for them to mention that <laughs> because it's their competition, and they and it's hard to, like, I mean, it makes sense. It's hard to be like, yo, our our biggest, one of our biggest competitions in the States are guys that we had, and we we let go. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or we lost, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's very similar to when WWE I mean, they're they're a little bit better about it now, but like back in the day, like they would not, you know, mention people's past in WCW or ECW, or they would try to like they made lists. They would kind of, you know, kind of work their way around history and kind of create their own history on how things happened in certain. Guys. I remember one time um, Greg Valentine was on the uh, Piper's Pit with Hot Rod, and Roddy Piper was like, "I know we've wrestled, we've had our past, we've had our differences." And they were both bad guys at the time, so he's like alluding to the idea that they used to be enemies, and I like that was like one of the only times that they ever did that because it's like where where did that happen, <laughs> Roddy Piper? <laughs> <laughs> but for the most part, like you know, it's not like they're out here being like you know Joe and uh, AJ been wrestling all over the world, and <laughs> <laughs> like they don't acknowledge it, you know? Right. Uh, next question here from Reddit user JTom416. Fantasy booking. All the Japanese companies decide they'll do a joint show at the first show back after the pandemic. Main event has two guys from NJPW, two from AJPW, two from NOAA, and two more from any other promotion of companies. Eight total. What are your teams for that match and who wins, a.k.a. who's getting pinned with a Rainmaker? Okay. Oh, one thing I wanted to mention before we move on. Had Kenny Omega lost a really big match in America that they could have shown footage of and put over, say, Okada or Ishii or someone like that, they would have showed it. Right. Because I mean, but they couldn't. the The big match that he did lose was against Cody, but they don't want to show Cody going over either. <laughs> that was in Ring of Honor, though. Right. But I'm saying, like, if they so, that doesn't fit the recount. Yeah. The recount was New Japan like matches. Gotcha. But you're right. Yeah, that, that that was the big one. Um, as far as this question goes, I don't know, man. How you want to do this? <laughs> All right. So let, let's let's do some teamwork here and put together this matchup here. Um, all right. So I guess let's do New Japan and All Japan on a team. So we'll pick two from there, two from there, and then let's do Noah and Dragon Gate as a team. Well, I was going to pick Sakamoto as my outside company guy. One of them. Uh, and he's in what company? He's freelancer. Freelancer. I mean, he he works big Japan. He works all Japan. I mean, he's a freelancer. He works lots of places. Um, from New Japan. I mean, I don't know. Here's the thing. It's like a lot of times, often when they do those all together shows, when they have done them in the past, or even like some of the ones they've done, like the uh, Baba Memorial or the Destroyer Memorial, they kind of like don't always put the top, top, top guys. Or, you know, sometimes they do, but I don't know. Uh, well, let's just fantasy book. I mean, what two top guys do you think they would do? You think it would be like Okada and Tanahashi? I was going to say Okada and Naito. You could, but that sounds weird, right? Yeah. Okada and Naito teaming together? I don't know. That's kind of, I mean, well, it's weird just like it, it, these promotions just teaming together, so. Uh, that's true. I think I think if I was booking, I would try to book something that like kind of thematically worked, you know. So if I was going to book like some Lij guys together, I would try to book someone that kind of made sense f on some standpoint from All Japan to like team with the. Maybe like if I did, I think if I was going to do Lij, then I might do like 
Cano and, I don't know, uh, Nakajima or something like that. That might make kind of sense, I guess. All right, well, let's, let's go with the Mega Aces then. Let's go Okada and Tanahashi representing New Japan. Okay. Um, and then from All Japan, I think we'd want to put Kento Miyahara on the team. Yeah. And then I don't know. Um, Do you go with the Jake, current, the current champ Suwama? Um, I would say no. Um, uh, you could go Yoshitatsu. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's really improved a lot, and he actually like has teamed with uh, Kento Miyahara, so it kind of makes sense. Uh, Jake Lee's a you know, one of their up and coming like top guys as well. He might make sense as well. Yeah. I've heard a lot about Jake Lee. Yeah. Let's, let's go Jake Lee with, um, Kento Miyahara teaming with Okada and Tanahashi. And then, so our team, they'd be going against, um, a Noah team and then two other promotion slash freelancers. So you said, do you want to use Sakamoto? Yeah. Uh, so Sakamoto works, um, from Noah, I guess I would use um, this is tough. Let's see. Who can we use from? I mean, I guess you could do Marafuchi. What about uh, Goshiyazaki? You could do Goshiyazaki. I mean, um, I mean, Kato Kiyomiya is like their top guy. Yeah. Like the thing is, I know some of their top guys, and but I don't really know all the relationships between these guys because, again, we are a New Japan podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, I don't know. Like, you could do Goshiyozaki and like Marafuji. Okay, let's do that. So Goshiyozaki, Marafuji, Daisuke Sakamoto, and then we need one more guy. I don't know. Hideki Suzuki? Yeah, you can do that. I mean, that's fine. Unless I don't know. Unless you want to do something weird. I don't know. Uh, yeah, that works for me. And then clearly we, we've kind of stacked the Dragon Gate All Japan team. So clear, clearly they're, they're, they would win that match. I, I, thought it was all, I thought it was New Japan All Japan. That's what I said. What did I say? Dragon Gate. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, we stacked the New Japan All Japan team. So clearly they would win. I mean, maybe if we had, uh, I mean, Jake Lee could take the loss. Also, if we had put Yoshitatsu there, they, he could have took the loss. I mean, honestly, we really stacked the other side, too. I don't, that's the thing. Like, it's unrealistic. They would need some sort of pin eater on the other side. I mean, I guess you could pin Go Shiozaki. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. That's a tough one. Well, but, yeah. Last match, you got you guys decide who who you think should have won that one. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm I'm seeing a lot of people out there um, start to book like all together type shows, you know, for like when we come back, like Dream Cards. Mm-hmm. And I just I don't follow enough of those companies to know what is realistic or good, you know. Right. It's hard enough to do it with just New Japan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next question from Reddit user just a little bear zero one. Do you think it's possible that the Corona break has messed up excursion return plans for Kawato gone for over two years and Oka will be near two years soon? 
Possibly. Um, I mean, the last I kind of heard from um, Kawato was that, you know, he won he won the um, super lightweight title in CMLL, and then he disappeared. They vacated the title from him, and then so after like a few months, he came back from nobody knows why, and he lost a hair versus hair match to uh, Dolce Gardenia uh, at one of the big January shows. So he lost his hair. And since then, you know, he's kind of just been doing his thing. Like they gave him a big push. And then I don't know, usually like when a guy wins a title and then loses their hair, those are signs that they might be ready to come back. I haven't really heard great things about Cuato's time in um, CMLL or even just Mexico. And most of the matches I've seen have left me not very impressed, to be honest with you. Um, Oka, on the other hand, we heard a lot of negative things in the beginning, but recently, since he kind of has revamped the uh, gimmick and then um, gotten a tag partner, they're the current reigning um, Rep Pro Tag Champions. Right. A lot of people have said some really good stuff about his uh, his run of Rep Pro over the past six six or seven months. So, I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of hard to kind of pinpoint, you know, when these guys are going to come back and kind of what the game plan is going to be. So, I mean, they could have been stay on excursion for the rest of this year, maybe come back after the Tokyo Dome next year. Maybe they came back at Dominion. Who, who knows when they were going to come back? But I'm sure, obviously, since they're not wrestling, that their the plan has, has been currently slowed down. And who knows what happens when they come back. Maybe when New Japan comes back, like, all right, let's hotshot these guys. Let's bring them back in right. and see what happens. That's what I was going to say. Like, There's always the chance that maybe it has slowed the progression and maybe it's going to prolong their excursions. There's also the chance that it might be like, yo, it's time to just pull these guys back. Let's just let's do our thing, you know. So, like you said, they might hot shot them. So we we don't know one way or the other. But um, you know, they have been gone for a while. Yeah. And you know, I had heard we had heard at one point that they were thinking about bringing them back, and then you know things kind of went radio silent for a while. So I'm not sure. So next question here from Reddit user WizFactor. If you could create a brand new stable in New Japan, who would you put in it? You're allowed to take wrestlers from other stables as a part of a face slash heel turn. Um, <laughs> um, okay, if I'm doing a brand new stable in New Japan, then I'm going to do... Uh, you want to do yours first? Yeah, because mine kind of relates to the previous question. So I'm doing a straight brand new faction. I'm bringing, I am too. I'm doing Oka, Kawato, and Narita coming out. They're going to attack somebody, and they're, they're going to be this new unit here, like my, my New Japan version of a Death Triangle with these uh, three young lions coming back from Excursion. Okay. Um, I will tell you who's going to be in my... Um New Japan stable. Let me just look at the personnel here and I will tell you exactly who's going to be in this. And it's going to be like a badass um, group. Let me see. Okay. Uh, number one, Bad Luck Fale. Um, number two, Hiroki Goto. Number three, Evil. Um, number four, Jeff Cobb. And number five, 
will go with Toa Hanare. Mm. And this is going to be a group of dudes who all feel like they've been kind of not utilized right, kind of uh, underestimated and overlooked. And they're like five of the baddest, biggest dudes who can just fuck anybody up. And the gimmick is basically going to be that like on their own as individuals, maybe they were all missing something. You know what I mean? Mm. But together they have all the tools. They have all the tools (laughs) and like, they they show up one day and they fuck up Naito, right? And then and then like they they beat up Naito and then like the ace thinks he's got it. They fuck him up. And then like Okada's like the, the next guy. Fuck him up too. And it's like, oh shit, these guys are for for real. <laughs> yeah. And then and then, you know, to set up a, a big um you know, redemption storyline where like, you know, I think that'd be something cool. So that's that's my idea. Nice, I like that. It's uh, kind of out of the box. I like it. Uh, next question here from user Rambone Slam Pig. How do you think this break from running shows will impact the development of the young lions currently in the dojo in Tokyo or LA? What about the guys out on excursion? Do you think anyone gets rushed back when this is over, or will some guys have unusually long excursions as a result? <sighs> Well, um, you know, we kind of gave you the updates that we know as far as like Kawato and Oka are concerned. Now, keep in mind um, how a, an excursion quote unquote goes is not always indicative of how that person is going to be perceived when they come back or um, treated by management. You know what I mean? Like there have been historically some guys, some guys who've gone out on excursion and had fantastic excursions and come back and f- like literally failed. There's some people who have had some so-so mediocre, maybe even terrible um, excursions and come back and been great, like huge stars. Okada. Right. Yeah. (laughs) You know, lots of examples of things like that. So you don't know what's going to happen when they come back. So, uh, you know, there are some people who might watch, say a a Kawato san match in CML and think he's not ready. Well, you don't know that you, you because you don't know what New Japan is looking for. A lot of times these excursions are chances for these guys to learn new styles, get different looks, get reps and get some world experience. Just learn life before, you know, before they invest in those people. So, I mean, you don't know where anybody is really like that's that's up to New Japan to kind of make those assumptions. So th- those guys might be ready. We, we don't know. As far as like the guys in the dojo, that's a little different because, and I think this goes for everybody. You know, there's a difference between having practice matches and scrimmage and things like that versus getting real reps in front of a live crowd, which nobody really can do right now. So, from that aspect, it's going to impact any of their development. If if any of them still need more ring work, more experience, they're just they're not able to get that right now. Right. I mean, we do, know- and that's a detriment. Yeah, we do know. We know we talked to Carl a few weeks ago. Like those guys, they're still they're still training, so they're they're going to be in great shape. They're still working out. Um, like you mentioned, they're, they're still getting some scrimmage and ring time, so their fundamentals um, should be uh, pretty good. But like you mentioned, this uh, getting live ring time is big key in audience, even if it's a small audience of fifty people. You know, working in front of people—that's how you get better. And working with different opponents of different styles. 
Um, so yeah, that is going to affect them some bit, but at least they are, you know, still training, still working out and still, you know, improving on their fundamentals. That plus, you know, working people that are more experienced than you so that you can learn lessons in the ring. You know, that's also, you know, just getting that experience to like learn timing, learn how to read the crowd, learn, you know, the, the, the small things that make great wrestlers right now, they can't really learn that. So there, there's pluses and minuses, you know, they're probably getting rest to their body, rest to their mind. Uh, I know we're all getting restless just being inside, but, you know, this, if, if you treat this time as something, as an opportunity, there are opportunities that are being afforded to them that they wouldn't normally get. So that's good, but there's, there's downsides as well. So yeah, it, it might be prolonging some of their growth and development, but it might be helping them in other ways too. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see kind of how those guys you know how they come back so keep an eye on those guys uh next question comes from twitter follower at mad nutter 0102 says i don't know much if anything about hanma's throat injury can you tell me what exactly happened i can't um i don't think there there was ever any specific incident that occurred when it comes to his throat what happened is he wrestled a deathmatch style for multiple years, and then he wrestled a strong style where he got chopped in the throat and you know punched in the throat um, and dropped on on his throat. I mean, this is a pretty common injury in Japan. Uh, for instance, I know like um, Tenryu has the same deal, like like his, and also you look at Johnny Ace. Plus smoking. I don't know that he is a smoker, but I wouldn't be surprised because a lot of smokers have gravelly voices like that. And it, you know, it was something that was kind of rampant amongst wrestlers back then. But all we know is that he had he has crushed vocal cords, and it's from wrestling. So I don't think that there's. I think it was an accumulation to to the best of my knowledge. I don't think there's ever one incident that happened. Right. Yeah. I was trying to do some research on this question today, and yeah, there's not really much out there. Just people like, yeah, it, it's. You know, damaged vocal, you know, crushed larynx. Like, there's not, you know, X, Y, Z caused it. Like you said, it's definitely a, has to be a buildup over time. Wrestling that deathmatch style, wrestling a strong style, and just never really taking a break until the injury. Yeah. Uh, next question comes from Twitter follower at Jbone Spookman. If you had to create a wrestling drinking game for any match or any show, what would the rules be? Uh, if I had to do one for New Japan, it would be every time there's a ref bump, you take a shot. <laughs> uh, and it doesn't matter how severe it is. It could be very minor. Um, also, anytime um, the heels distract the ref, you know, someone jumps up on the apron, distracts him, take a shot. You will be fucked up by the end of that. It doesn't matter if it's Road 2 or Wrestle Kingdom. You will be fucked up by the end of the show. So I got one for the final countdown as you're watching these matches. So you take a shot anytime there's any kind of dive. Oh, God. <laughs> take a shot anytime somebody's mask gets ripped. Yeah. Take a shot anytime somebody does a, a tombstone pile driver. It's uh, not the finish. <laughs> take a shot anytime somebody suplexes somebody over the top rope. Um, how about this one? You're watching a New Japan show. Take a shot anytime they zoom in on the title that's up for grabs in the match. Mm. You're gonna be drunk. <laughs> take, take take a shot, especially if 
Especially if it's a major show where there's a lot of titles on the line. Mm-hmm. Take a shot in time is a lariat. Oh, no, you die. <laughs> that's that's not even – you can't do that. It's impossible. <laughs> yeah. Those are some ideas. I, I don't know. I'm I'm not I don't do the drinking game stuff. I just I, I just drink. <laughs> you know, if, if you're watching the Kenny Omega match, take a shot every time there's a V trigger. Oh fuck. <laughs> you would die. There's no way. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's impossible. Um yeah. <laughs> That's some funny stuff. Next question from Twitter follower at Ishirogi. You have to pick one. Have a constant smell of poop under your nose or have a fly constantly buzz around your head. You can't kill the fly or get rid of the poop smell, and no one else can smell the poop or hear or see the fly but you. The fly. Yeah. I, I As much as I hate that idea, and it would really drive me crazy, I can, I'm pretty good at tune, learning how to tune things out. So right. I yeah, like, I feel like after a while you just you would adapt to the sound of it, and you wouldn't probably wouldn't even hear it anymore. Yeah, you, you're so used to it. Now here's the thing, um, he's saying that the that the poop has a constant smell that you can't get rid of. That's fine, you know that sounds horrible, but the reality is, I don't know if the science behind this really works because think about this. People that live in rural areas where there's uh, like manure everywhere, they don't smell it. Right. You know yeah. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or if you live in a house that like smells really, really bad or whatever, you don't smell it because the way the human body is is made up is that we are prone to recognize new smells that are being re- introduced and not so much smells that are constantly there. That's why like if you spray perfume or cologne or whatever, you're not going to – and it's on your own body. You're not going to smell it, but other people can. Um, so I mean – Maybe hypothetically, I'm not saying it's a good thing, but hypothetically, maybe that cons if if the poop smells constant, you might not even smell it after a while. You know mm, what I'm saying? That, that's true. Now, if he's saying that you have to be smelling it, well, then you're breaking the laws of physics at that point, and it's like, okay, well, then I definitely don't want it. But like, if you were to just get used to it, maybe you only smell it for like a minute every morning when you wake up. I might do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Beats having the the buzzing so now it noise all day. I, I think Ushirogi like needs to have thought this out a little bit more so because obviously I've I've done my my thinking. Actually, I thought I I didn't know what this question was until on the fly. This is the same guy that asked us the knife and bat question. Like, do you think he's actually listening to the show and like getting a kick out of this, or do you think it's like a Twitter troll who's just like this will be hilarious and then like never actually checks up on it. Well, he follows us, um, so I'm, I'm yeah. assuming he listens to the show and and. And he's following, keeping up with us. So I, he's the one dude who keeps asking us non-New Japan questions. It's kind or, of funny. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think it's, it's his gimmick. I think he's getting a he's getting a whole a pop. He's popping, you know, of us answering these questions. So, well, Ushirogi, you popped me. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, next question comes from Kyle Martin from the Wrestling Squared Circle Facebook group. He has uh, four questions here for us. First, he says, "Could you guys talk?" A little more in-depth about New Japan World, please. Perhaps I'm simply misunderstanding, but why does the network provide free content when you already have to pay to subscribe? Also, does the network provide joint promotion shows from IWFI, WCW, All Japan, Ring of Honor, NOAA, or UFO? Ah, interesting question. So, um, here's the deal with New Japan World. Um, When you go onto the actual website, you don't have to log in. You can actually navigate the entire website to see what's in the library, 
what they're offering, yada, yada, yada. But there are some, there's some content, excuse me, that has a, uh, you'll always see it. Uh, the way it shows up on my browsers is that it's usually got like a red sticker underneath it, like a red marker, and it says free. Yeah. And this might be the free match of the week. It might be a show that they're offering for a short period of time. Recount. Uh, recount, stuff like that. But the majority, I would say like 98% of what's on the network is not free. You actually have to have a subscription to watch it. Trust me, all you got to do is click on it. And if you don't have a subscription, they're not going to play it. Right. And, and the whole model there, you know, they're, they're using a similar model. Sometimes, you know, Netflix does it sometimes. WWE Network's been doing it. They're trying to entice you up here. You know, check out this free match or this free show, whatever it is. Oh, did you like that? Well, subscribe and you can get, you know, thousands and thousands of hours of this, the thing you just watched. Right. Now, here's the thing. I think his question was, you know, why are they offering free content when you already have to pay? Well, it's like, well, it's not for you if you're already paying. It's for people who are not paying. Right. And the nice thing there is that they're not giving away the whole entire shebang for three months for people who just sign up and haven't even put any money into it like you are, the good, hardworking, paying customer. They're only giving away just some sample bites so that someone who might want to become a subscriber can dip their toe in the water, which is nice, which I, I think they should be doing. That's a smart thing. And, you know, uh, and if you're paying, y- you get all of it for, for, you know, for whatever you're paying. Uh, as far as joint promotion shows, uh, well, first off, New Japan really doesn't run too many joint promotion shows in general anymore. I mean, they have with like uh, Red Pro and Ring of Honor and every, you know, overseas they've done that over the past few years um and then you know periodically cmll or ring of honor or even sometimes red pro will come and run tours with them in japan that that's part of their content but as far as like them showcasing content from those other companies they do but it's pretty sparse like um sometimes they'll have an a match from mcw or uh, they actually had a, um, some shows when Liger was on his retirement show or retirement tour. They had some matches from um, some like Japanese independent scenes and from uh, some Australian PCW. Was it PWA? Uh, yeah, I think it was PWA. Yeah, PWA. So I mean, yeah, they they do some stuff like that. They they've got some Red Pro content. They got some uh, Ring of Honor content. They even had some like Noah and All Japan content in the past. But it's not regular. It's like pretty rare, right? Um, I, mean, I feel like in the last, you know, couple of years, if it's a current New Japan guy in a big singles match, it's probably sooner or later going to get up on NJPW World. You look at a lot of the Rev Pro matches, like the Ishii and Keith Lee series, um, yeah, and you know, big matches like that. Guys that are in one-on-one matches, they're going to upload. They're not going to upload the whole show, but they will upload that segment of the show of that match. Yeah, as far as like. Um, they don't have any WCW content except for the times when WCW wrestlers have wrestled in New Japan. Um, they don't have any of the UFO stuff because technically that was a separate company, even though it was you know managed by Inoki. Um, I think he meant when he says IWFI, I think he means UWFI. Mm. Um, they don't have any UWFI shows except for the stuff from when those wrestlers came to wrestle in Japan. Same thing with war, same thing with Michinoku pro WWF, all sorts of stuff like that. They actually do have some WWF content. Mm. 
they have some 70s and 80s WWF show, uh, not shows, but like matches, like with uh, Inoki and Fujinami and Tiger Mask, stuff like that. But, you know, that stuff's rare. And, you know, pretty much at this point, just so it kind of makes sense, like um, TV Asai, which is their, you know, parent company, kind of has to have access to all this footage in most cases for them to be able to post it. So, right. So the second question is, did Enochiism affect every division from the juniors to the tag teams, or was it just the world title scene and contenders in specific? Everything. Every single division was affected profoundly. Uh, the entire company, uh, and, and you're gonna, we're going to talk about that when we do this next part of uh, the final countdown. The junior division was affected very heavily. Um, the tag team divisions were too. And in many cases, they were damaged and we're still kind of recovering from that damage, even to this day. <laughs> to this day. To this day. Uh, to this day. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, I mean, Inokiism. Um, and, you know, I'm not someone who's completely down on everything that happened with Inokiism. There was, even though I do recognize a lot of the bad booking and a lot of the bad business decisions, like, there's some good stuff there, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of bad stuff too. Uh, next question. I'm trying to be optimistic and look forward to the future since New Japan successfully did two consecutive nights in the Tokyo Dome. Do you think, do either of you think they'll make their 50th anniversary show a big event like, like Dominion or Wrestle Dynasty two months removed from Wrestle Kingdom? No. Yeah, I don't think, so. I mean, we've seen in the past what the, they could, they could, but with the anniversary show, Maybe they might do. Uh, uh, well, the main event always the last couple of years has been the heavyweight champ versus junior champ. So technically, you could do a, a big match depending on who the champions are at the time, and not throw away a match that you would do at Dominion or Wrestle Dynasty or some other big show down the line. Um, so yeah, I think it's going to be the normal kind of tradition, celebrating the anniversary and having maybe it might be a bigger card like we saw this year's card and it wasn't that great. Obviously, the highlight was going to be. Naito and Hiromu But maybe they might up the card a little bit But I think the focus will still be on that Heavyweight versus junior heavyweight main event they, They've they made big deals In the past of their Anniversary Not necessarily on the anniversary date But like maybe during the like I remember they did the anniversary tours In the past So like it wasn't like just road to The anniversary show but it was like 36th anniversary Tour and then Every night there was something special or the gimmick, or they've done big dome shows that occurred during the year of an anniversary, and they made a emphasis that year, like you know, this is before it was Wrestle Kingdom, it was uh, Wrestling World in the Tokyo Dome, you know, and they did like 25th anniversary, you know, and stuff like that. So they could do something like that. They, I mean, they could make a big deal out of it, but traditionally, the big deal why the anniversary show is significant is that they hold it in the original same arena where they held their first ever show in 1972 and they do it on the same date. This is the first year because of COVID that they didn't do that. So, and it's a mid-sized building and the way it's slotted in the calendar, it doesn't really lend itself to being a bigger show than say Wrestle Kingdom or Dominion because of, of where it's slotted. I mean, if it was in, you know, if, if they were doing their anniversary show in 
you know, Sumo Hall or Ria Goku or whatever, and it was around the same time as Dominion, then sure, they might do something bigger, but it, I just don't think they will. Right. Like, like I said, you don't want you want to blow a, a big heavyweight title match, um, you know, on on the anniversary show on on that spot there. You're going to want to, you know, doing the heavyweight versus junior heavyweight title match, I think it's a cool thing and something that could draw also like, like I mentioned the Naito and Hiromu match is a match that would that did draw this year and sold that show out and so you're, you're not going to want to do like an Okada versus Naito or, or a big IWGP heavyweight title match or you know an eight match stacked card on that show when you can use those matches to draw for the bigger buildings for the bigger shows so this next question, I noticed New Japan doesn't have a triple crown or grand slam accolades like North American companies once more you guys have brought up in the past, New Japan has two divisions of near equivalency with the juniors and the heavyweights. So if all that being said, how would you guys classify a New Japan Triple Crown champion and a Grand Slam champion? I mean, what's a Grand Slam champion? That's when someone wins all the titles? Yeah, when they win all the current active singles titles. I mean... The reality is the junior heavyweight title oh, is not... Actually, a, I think Grand Slam, actually, I think the tag titles do count on that also. Yeah, I think you have to win all the belts. Yeah. Um, let me go to Twitter just to get some um, clarification here. I mean, what? I don't know. <laughs> uh, I've, never I, thought, I've never thought about this in, in New, like New Japan. Well, I mean, if you want to go all the belts, you could say the Grand Slam champion, yeah, somebody who's held every single current active title in New Japan. Uh, for, you know, a, a triple crown, you could say somebody that's held the IWGB heavyweight title, intercontinental title, and maybe the never title. Well, I mean, I think the, the big thing here is like, okay, the... Um the junior title is not equivalent to the heavyweight title. Like in some ways it is a very important title and it's not far off, but ultimately the IWGP heavyweight title is the most prestigious title in all of wrestling, like period. So I think like if you're talking about quote unquote grand slam, they have to win everything. Someone probably wouldn't want to hear this, but unfortunately they, I think they got to win everything. So they got to win the junior title and the world heavyweight title, which like no one does. Unless it's like Kenny Omega. Right. And maybe one day Kota Ibushi. <laughs> like, no, like very few people have ever done that, you know? Yeah. Um, am I wrong in that? I mean, I don't know. Well, I'm looking it up now. So, so Wiki says, The Grand Slam is an accomplishment recognized by various promotions, wrestling promotions in the U.S. It's a distinction given to a professional wrestler who has won four specific championships within a promotion throughout the course of their career. Okay, so they have to have won four titles, including three singles championships and a tag title. So let's see, in 97, uh, WWE, the term Grand Slam was originally used by Shawn Michaels to describe winning the European title. Michaels had previously held the WWF Championship, IC Championship, and World Tag Team Championship. Okay, well then under uh, under that understanding, all they have to do is win... Four singles belts. The well, the world title has to be one of them, right? Right. So the world title, 
three other singles titles and a tag team title. Well, it'll be, it'll be the world title in two two other singles titles and then a tag title. No, four titles, typically including three singles championships plus a tag team. Right. Oh, you're right. Okay, my bad. Okay. Then that seems like kind of not. I wouldn't say easy, but I mean, then a lot of people have done it. Right. I was thinking like Grand Slam meant you had everything. So in 01, it says that they said the hardcore title could substitute the European title to complete the Grand Slam. I don't know. I'm not like really a mark for that whole entire concept to begin mm-hmm. with. So, I mean, I've never really thought about it, but I mean, there is your, you know, that that's your definition right there. It's uh, three singles titles, including the world title and a tag belt. Um, I wouldn't include the junior title as being equivalent to the heavyweight title personally. So I would say that that could be one of those singles belts. Could, yeah, could you yeah so swap out the junior? So let's say somebody wins IWGP junior and never in the tag title. That could be considered. Grand yeah, I think, I think, I think if I was really concerned, it would be the US, the IC, the Never, and the Junior all eligible as being singles titles along with the IWGP, and then, um, I guess for the sake of this argument you could consider any three of the tag titles whether it's the trios the junior or the heavy true yeah so that, that works out there and then for a, a grand slam or i mean a, a triple crown i guess that would be the three heavyweight title three maybe three heavyweight titles or maybe because you, you could consider uh the junior title a part of that yeah so next question here from and, and what was the, and i'm sorry so the what the other part was um Triple Crown is Triple Crown different than Grand Slam? The well, Grand Slam is better. Well, that's what I was just saying. Like for for Triple Crown, it's three singles titles. So before Sean had won, oh, actually, so before actually, I think back just, then it it was it was the IC, the tag, and the um, and the world title. Right. So I guess it's let's see if the world can, title, yeah. the tag title, and the secondary title. Yeah, so it says, yeah, Triple Crown is traditionally used to describe a wrestler who's won the WWE Championship, IC title, and the now defunct World Tag Team Championships. I don't know, man. I mean, I, I, I think each title on its own has its own distinction as far as, like, the um, relevancy as opposed to, like, going through and, and achieving, like, these... Um, you know, other concepts of like conquering all the different divisions because it's, I don't know. It's just, I, I don't know how to describe it. Like very few people usually ascend and then descend until much later. You know, once you get to that level, like once you're at IWGP level, like you're not going to be like a Miz or uh, <laughs> like uh, Dolph Ziggler or Sheamus where like, Three years later, you're going to be challenging for never titles. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Like, like that very rarely happens. Right. It's like once you're on that level, you stay there until you become like a New Japan dad. And then for the most part. Yeah. There. I don't know. I mean, I, I get the question. I just think it's a difference of culture. Like, I don't know. Like, we don't really go around talking about like New Japan Grand Slam champions or anything because it's not that because I don't know, because I guess like in WWE, like they they hot shot so many different titles that like 
that's like the big deal. It's like not only are they a world title, but they held all, all the belts, you know? Right. But like in, in in New Japan, it's like once you've won that belt, like you're done, you know? Right. You did it. And then you, you got you got guys like Tomohiro Ishii who also have the in-ring skills to be the IWGP champion. But, I mean, at this point in his career, he's probably never going to get to that level. He's gonna, he's kind of in that upper mid-card, and that's where he's slotted. Like he could yeah. he could ascend, but he's probably just going to stay in that that upper mid card slot. Mm-hmm. Um, so next question from the Discord from Muzza Murray Bone. He says, "Your thoughts on All Japan's Suwama's exp- interest in All Japan having women's division?" Yeah, um, you know, uh, if they that's something that would help them from a business perspective and you know would uh then that's a good thing um you know we've talked about the pros and cons of that in the past so i'm not opposed to it i i don't see necessarily i don't think that will necessarily like translate to uh women getting equal booking or opportunity uh with the men but you never know maybe it would Maybe, um, you know, maybe that's the right environment for, you know, like a lot of these Joshi talents to get a bigger stage. I don't know. Right. And like we said, with this thing with like Joshi and New Japan, I think it all comes down to business. If all Japan thinks it's a good business decision, like it's going to draw, then go for it. But if it's, they're not, if it's not going to be a good business decision, then just keep it the way it is. Yeah. Uh, so his next question is for you. He says, while going through the first top of the Super Juniors, I was looking through the names of some of the guys in it and noticed that Tatsutoshi Goto was in New Japan for over <laughs> 20 years, yet is a name I don't fully know of. Is there any matches worth watching, and did he ever accomplish much in his time in New Japan? Yeah, that, there's a name, uh, Tatsutoshi Goto. Um, I mean, I don't know, man. Like, Goto was... Um, and people are going to make jokes when they hear me say this because they're going to be like, oh, from one Goto to another. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not the same. But um, this Goto was pretty much mid-card to lower mid-card most of his career. Um, whereas, as opposed to our Goto in modern times, has been booked very much like a star for the majority of his career in New Japan. It's not the same thing. Um, also, talent-wise, not even close. I, I don't know. I, I honestly haven't watched much of uh goto you know keep in mind most exposure for for north american fans throughout the years has was done either through video releases tape trading things like that and i mean if you're gonna get a tape you you hoped to get the big stars and tatsutoshi goto was not one of those top stars uh what i know of him he was in the um he was in that group with uh um God, why do I forget names? Who won the 1991 um, Best Super Juniors? Uh, Honaga. Yeah, so he was in a group with Honaga called, I think, the Suicidal Blondes or the Dangerous Blondes, something like that. And um, he was kind of like the mid-card guy in that group. And then later on, he joined uh, Heisei Ishingunden, uh, which was a major group, but he was kind of like the fall guy in that group. Um, I know that he did go on to win, like, the heavyweight tag titles at one point. I also know he won like a, a trio, like one of the trios turn like G one trio tournaments at one point. But, um, you know, 
he's kind of a loser. The only match I can really remember, he was he, there's a ten man tag from like 1990 that he's in, that's kind of good, but he's not that good. I don't really have any match recommendations from him, just unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't know. Like that's a, that's a yeah. Uh, good good digging, Murray. But uh, yeah, it's not really someone I would recommend checking out. Uh, next question comes from Rich Latta co-host of One Nation Radio right here on the Social Suplex Podcast Network, has three questions for us. Uh, first question, should the IWGP strip all the championships and make all title holders work to earn them back? Um, I think this is just coming for from his uh, distaste and hate for uh, our IWGP champion, uh, Tetsuya Naito. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's become an ongoing gag in our our Largo Loop thread of uh, kind of bashing Naito because, you know, a friend of the show, Zach Porter, who's been on the show before, um, is a big Naito fan. And so we always have a good time, you know, kind of bashing Naito and uh, making fun of Naito in the thread. Nah, it's not a bit. Rich wants them to strip Naito. (laughs) So if you strip Naito, then you got to strip Shingo of the Never Title. You got to strip Hiromu of the Junior Title. All of them. Uh, the, um, the golden aces stripping the tag titles yeah now here's one thing um rich go back and watch some uh some network uh wcw nitro from 2000 and <laughs> let's see how how well that worked out for that company when they did the same thing oh, all i remember was like sid vicious like walking up and handing over his title and i was like what a bitch <laughs> this man didn't even like didn't even argue with them he just laid his belt down and uh, just walked away and i'm like <laughs> Uh, his next question is for you. He says, can Josh name every G1 winner in order? Uh, uh, I think I can. All right, hold on. Let me uh, pull up a list here <laughs> to make sure. So I, I know fact, you, can, you can do part of it because that was one of our, that was the final quiz question. Uh, uh, in our quiz? In the Ricky and Clive quiz. Uh, quiz that me and you did that we were in the, that opening round of the Ricky and Clive uh, quiz invitational. Uh, keep in mind, I got all of those answers correct as well. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. I know you could do at least most of it. Uh, all right. So are we all starting? Right. Are we starting from? Uh, I can I can start from 1974. Okay, run it. So let's see it was the world league for four years the first two years Inoki won the second two years sakaguchi won mm-hmm. um after that it was msg league for five years um Inoki won for four years straight so that puts him at six tournaments <laughs> <laughs> yep so um, you're at uh so that was 81 was the sixth one he won 82 Andre won the MSG League. That's the last MSG League. After that, it was the IWGP League. That's when they got rid of the NWF title and replaced it with the first ever IWGP title. Hulk Hogan wins the finals. He knocks out Inoki. The next year, Inoki wins the tournament. 85 Andre wins the tournament. 86, Inoki vacates his title so he can compete in the tournament and he regains the IWGP title. So he's already the champion and then he wins it for a second time. So he puts himself over. <laughs> uh, in 1987, they have another IWGP league. The winner of this one wins the new version or quote unquote the current version of the IWGP title. 
And guess who wins? Inoki. <laughs> I think he been. I think he beats Masa Saito. I can't remember. Um, Eighty-eight. Inoki wins the last IWGP League, so that's ten tournament wins for Inoki. That's the last tournament win he ever has. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, it's the World Cup in eighty-nine, and Ricky Choshu wins. Yep. That brings us to the G1. 91 and 92 are both Masahiro Chono. Fujinami wins it in 93. I think he beats Hiroshi Hase. Muto wins it in 95. You skipped Choshu. Uh, 94. Oh, Chono wins again. Mm-hmm. I think he beats Kenzuki Sasaki. Um, I could be wrong. 95 is Muto. 96 is Choshu. Choshu beats Chono for that. 97 is Sasaki. Yep. Power Warrior. 98, Hashimoto beats Yamazaki. 99, Nakanishi beats Muto. 2000 is Sasaki again. 2001, Yuji Nagata beats Kijimuto. 2002 is Masahiro Chono. Yep. Uh, 03 and 04 are both Tenzan, followed by Chono, and then Tenzan wins again in 06. Next is Tanahashi. Goto Makabe Kojima. Nakamura, Okada, Naito, Okada, Tanahashi, Omega, Naito, Tanahashi, Ibushi. Boom, yeah. Got them all. And that's exactly why you uh, beat me in the, the final round of, <laughs> of that quiz. <laughs> uh, and Yeah, those last ones I can remember because they're all like more current. Right. Also, I want to say this. There is a fantastic um, Cruel Summer on post wrestling um, with WH Park is one of the things that really helped me to like go back and, and kind of re-review all these G1 climax finishes. So if you haven't, uh, if you, if you have some time and you need something to listen to cruel summer by uh, post wrestling, it's a really, really good podcast. They examine each and every single one of those finishes. Nice. Yeah. Check those guys out. And so his last question for us, he says, what do you guys enjoy the most that is not wrestling? Oh, you want me to say that on the air? (laughs) (laughs) You know how I get down. (laughs) Wow. Uh, So, so, So your number three thing. No, honestly, there's a, I have a lot of interest, but I would say like the two things that I spend most of my time on that I enjoy are music. I'm a musician, and I'm a cinephile. I love I love cinema. I love movies, um, like hardcore. So yeah, I would say those are probably like my two biggest things that I enjoy outside of wrestling. Oh well, also combat sports. Mm-hmm. So MMA, boxing, kickboxing, stuff like that. Nice. Yeah, for me, um, lately I've gotten back into anime. Um, been Love watching, anime. 
been watching uh, My Hero Academia uh, Season 4 just finished Great stuff, highly recommend that If you um, are an anime fan You have not watched this anime yet You need to check it out, My Hero Academia So I've been you know, watching a lot of anime you know, I'm, I love you know superhero stuff I'm big into the Marvel Universe And the Marvel movies, I love all that stuff um, I'm trying to think, yeah probably those, those are probably the two biggest things Because wrestling consumes the majority of the stuff that I watch and revolve around. Really? What, uh, at some point, we should do a review of the Tiger Mask W anime series. Oh, <laughs> we could. <laughs> there actually is a really great boxing anime uh, that I love called... Um, oh, what's what's the name of that? Um, Hajime no Ippo. Uh, uh, I've, really, heard, really, I've heard of that one, yeah. It's It's freaking awesome. Really, really great. Yeah, yeah, man. Freaking growing up, the, the Toonami Afternoon Block was my jam with uh, Dragon Ball Z and Ronin Warriors and Sailor Moon. Uh, Gundam. Yeah, Gundam Wing. Oh, I loved Gundam Wing. Love uh, Gundam. Yeah, love that stuff. Uh, Inuyasha. Yeah, there was so much good um, stuff. Cowboy Cowboy Bebop. Oh, bro, yes, Cowboy Bebop. I used to have the, the DVD series of that. That was awesome. Yeah, there's some really good stuff out there. Uh, even like the muscle series for wrestling is really cool. I've I've caught some of that stuff. There's some there's some actually some pretty good wrestling animes out there. So nice. Uh, next question here from Maserati says, "Did you all buy the ZSJ or Naito boxers?" Nah, but you know, once I get those ZSJ uh, uh, boxers, I'm gonna be tying everybody up in pretzels. <laughs> I thought you were gonna go somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna spend a lot more time on my number two favorite thing, ZSJ <laughs> boxers. Um, no, I did not buy the ZSJ or Naruto boxers. I did buy the new Satoshi Kojima uh, cozy lariator lariator shirt. The shirt uh, says he is a lariator. That is horrible. <laughs> <laughs> that that new uh, orange shirt. So got that. Uh, but yeah, that's your favorite thing outside of wrestling: buying wrestling merch. <laughs> <laughs> merch freak. <laughs> oh man! However, you know you guys make fun of me for my merch collection, but Floyd like dwarfs my the collection of shirts I have. Yeah. Moving on. Uh, last question here from. EMJ does PR. He says, who is on the Super Junior Mount Rushmore? Um, yeah, I think that's a really easy answer. And I think there's only four. I think there are a lot of names that could be on there. But I think there's only four correct names. Unlike a lot of like Rushmores where there's a lot of like debate. I think these four individuals that I have absolutely are like the definitive right now rushmore and unless something changed drastically they're not moving okay it's obviously liger number one is liger liger is the greatest junior heavyweight of all time the most influential he has the most junior title reigns in history at 11 uh the most i believe the most um super junior title win or uh tournament wins He's also a former, I mean, you know, he's held titles all over the world, super influential. Um, he's held the junior title for the most days, and he's 
a multiple time junior uh, tag champion as well. I mean, like, you know, the, the list goes on and on. So he's number one. Number two would have to be Tiger Mask 1, Satoru Sayama, as just being like arguably one of, if not the biggest star in the history of uh, the junior heavyweight division. Um, his influence on junior heavyweight wrestling is like completely like it, it's hard to even describe. Um, not only that, but like he held the two top junior uh, world titles at like in the world, anywhere in the world at the same time. He held the WWF junior uh, heavyweight title, which was the top junior title in New Japan at the time, as well as the NWA junior heavyweight title. So he was the NWA and the WWF champion simultaneously when those two companies wouldn't even work together. He was the recognized number one guy. And he had the most influential series of matches, you know, during the 80s of anybody out there. Uh, you know, and, and he's a huge draw, you know, and so that's easily number two. Um, number three, a lot of people wouldn't think of this, but once I tell you why, you'll understand that, like, why he has to be on there. Nobody else could probably surpass him. Tatsumi Fujinami. Tatsumi Fujinami has to be on the list because he is the first true junior star in New Japan history. So first off, he's a pioneer. Number two, he is the guy that influenced the working style of New Japan to move away from the slower, more methodical Inoki uh, style to the more fast-paced. Like he literally is the guy that laid the groundwork for what guys like Grand Hamada and Tiger Mask and Kuniaki Kobayashi ended up doing. Like he's the first guy that started doing dives, topes, suicidas, you know, uh, kanhilos, all that sort of stuff, and he carried the division for like five years, almost something like that. And when you combine the, the lengths of his, uh, WWF junior heavyweight title, um, reigns together, it's like 1300, 1400 days. It's longer than anyone else ever held the IWGP junior title. And I think he's got more defenses of those, of that belt than the IW, than anyone else has of the IWGP junior heavyweight title. And he traveled all over the world as the main representative of, new japan in the junior division so i mean like it's got he he's the guy and then the final one might catch some people off guard but prince debit mm. it's got to be prince debit more so than anybody else because prince debit is, has one of the absolute longest reigns in the history of of the uh, junior title division also multiple junior title reigns with mul- he's got like 15 title defenses plus uh his work with apollo 55 multiple uh junior title reigns at the same time plus like we came out of the black period and yeah there was a lot of guys that helped like elevate the junior division but nobody did more to elevate the junior division in modern times than prince Devitt did including kushida and a lot of people will point to Kushida, but before there was a Kushida, there was a Devitt. And Devitt did more for junior wrestling than Kushida did. And because of that, those are the four guys. Yeah, Devitt had a lot of you know matches with heavyweights. It was in the G1, had matches with guys like Tanahashi. Yeah, and I mean, the work he did in the junior division is what laid the groundwork for what for like the groundswell what happened when he turned on Taguchi and started the Bullet Club and 
went to WWE and like there wouldn't be an AEW without him there. Like everything that happened is because of him. Like he's the one of the he's the most influential junior heavyweight in modern New Japan times. Yeah, you, you just look back to that that turn on Taguchi. That's a, a ripple wave that just caught. If you just like track back all the stuff that came just from that turn, like it's it's crazy. Look at the junior division before 2010, and then look at it post debit when once he beat Marafuji, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Mm. He 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 probably, and I can't say this for sure, but he's probably the junior of the decade in the 2010s of this past decade. He probably is. Not sure because Kushida's got an argument, but it's probably him. Mm. Well, that conversation kind of leads us perfectly into uh, week three of the final countdown. So before we jump into week three, let's recap weeks one and week two. So in week one, we covered uh, Top of Super Junior 1988, which was uh, Koshinaka versus Hiroshi Hase. We had Top of Super Junior 91, which was Hoganaga versus Jushin Thunder Liger. Top of Super Junior 92, which was El Samurai versus Jushin Thunder Liger. Top of Super Junior 93, Pegasus Kid versus El Samurai. And then best of Super Junior nineteen ninety four, which was Jushin Thunder Liger versus Super Delphin. Then for week two, we did best of Super Junior ninety five with Wild Pegasus versus Shinjiro Otani. Ninety six, which was Jushin Thunder Liger versus Black Tiger two. Ninety seven, which was Koji Kanemoto versus El Samurai. And then nineteen uh, ninety eight, Doctor Wagner Junior versus Koji Kanemoto. Yes, and um, that's going to bring us into 1999. And before we go there, I'd like to just say that um, I like the way that these reviews have kind of fallen. Originally, we had discussed doing um, five matches every episode. We're probably going to, I think next week, we're probably going to end up doing like five or six. uh, You know, but one thing that's nice is like 98, once you compare 98 to what we're about to see with 99 and the rest of these years, there is a drastic shift in the way that uh, the wrestling matches are worked and the tone and the style and also just the cast of, of wrestlers. So, I mean, it's a huge difference between 99 and 98, like a cataclysmic shift in the junior division just in general. And, it, and it's going to continue to change as time goes on. So it's kind of nice how things have worked out. Like Wagner Jr. against Kanemoto winds up being the last of a certain type of match for the juniors or of an era of juniors. Once, once, once we do this review of '99, you're gonna see that like things are still good, but they're never gonna be the same as the, as they were in those '90s. Yeah, last week's uh, four matches were definitely pretty high caliber. You know, the, the Liger Black Tiger match I had four and a half. Kanemoto El Samurai had a five, and Wagner and Koji I had at four point seven five. Um, yeah. And so yeah, so we'll look here now. This this week you know, the matches are not quite hitting that peak here. Um, so we're starting with Best of Super Juniors Final 1999, which this was an, a journey just to find this match. Oh, my God. So, I mean, do we 
uh, what should we, we haven't discussed this. What should I, or shouldn't I say? Because there are certain things. I'm just not sure what we can and can't disclose. <laughs> well, here's the thing. So I, we, we got access to a drive that had the match on there. Um, I downloaded that match and I've uploaded it to my own drive and I've shared a link to it. However, the, the file isn't a dot iOS I think or dot IO file. You need to download a VLC player to play the file. Now, Something a little bit interesting on this file. I think we can talk about what they... Okay. Yeah. So, um, shout-outs to Chris Bryan, um, who is a host uh, here on this network of Grim and Watch the Shit. Also, uh, my uh, pronounced man crush on the the network. You know, uh, me and him have a lot in common when it comes to our uh, wrestling fandom and background as far as wrestling viewing and just everything like that. And Chris is awesome. So, he hit me up. Earlier this week, you know, I'd kind of reached out to him amongst other people and been like, yo, I need help finding this stuff. And then he was like, eventually, he was like, well, you know about, quote, unquote, I won't say the name of it because I don't, I don't know how much, like, press they want to get for this sort of stuff. But he mentioned. Well, I mean, they're going to find out the name when they, if they download. If you go on, if you go on the, if you, if you download the file, you'll find the name. So maybe there's some incentive for you to just go ahead and get the file. But um, he mentioned to me that there was two gentlemen who had a show back in the day where they used to review Japanese wrestling and commentate over it. And I was like, wait, what? And mind you, this aired on television in North America. Public access. (laughs) In public access. And I was like, wait, what? And yeah, these guys from like, for like five or six years were reviewing all sorts of Joshi death matches, you know, Noah four pillars, everything. And they did it on public access. And like, uh, I got in contact with that team who was uh, involved with producing that show. And they graciously provided us with this uh, episode of their show for the match. So not only do we have the match in pretty good video quality, but we have it with English commentary from the early 2000s. <laughs> and it's not bad for, you know, just being, you know, some fans doing a public access show. But obviously these guys were smart marks during that time period and were reading the newsletters and were in contact with people because they knew their stuff and knew the backgrounds and history of stuff and they know knew the moves and so yeah their their commentary was pretty good here's the thing i'll say if you're this deep in the show and you're listening right now do me a favor don't make a big deal of this we've seen what's happened to other drives in the past like the real hero archive when too much publicity or things of that nature are cast upon it so just know this thing exists it's out there. Um, if you want to do some research on your own and find it, by all means, do not tell them that we sent you. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I'm not trying to get them shut down or anything like that. Like, it's kind of a back channel thing. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of crazy that there is a show that existed um, for years here in America where these diehard fans were not only – sharing Japanese wrestling with the general audience, but translating and uh, commenting over it. Like, and you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's kind of unprecedented. It's kind of crazy. It's, it's kind of awesome actually. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So we're here in 1999. Um, once again, obviously two block tournament, we've got 12 men this time tournaments held from May 19th to June 8th. So in the a block, 
We had uh, Super Shocker who came in with two points. We had uh, Takaiwa coming in with four points. We had Mujisuki coming in with four points. Yushin Thunder Liger coming in with six points. Grant Hamada coming in with six points. And then on top of the block, we had Koji Kanemoto with eight points. And on the That's crazy. Mazaki Mochizuki was in one of these Super Juniors. I never knew that. That's who, crazy. Who is he? Uh, I mean, he's one of the top stars in Dragon Gate right now. Gotcha. Okay. So then in the uh, the B block here, we had Orihara at the bottom there with two points. We had Minoru T- Tanaka. We'll be talking about him a little bit later. He had four points. Dr. Wagner Jr., who was in the finals last year, coming with four points. We had El Samurai coming with five points. Shinjiro Otani coming with seven. On top of the block, we had Kendo Cashin coming in with eight points. So that's our final here in the Nippon Budokan, Tokyo, Japan, June 8th, 1999. Kendo Cashin versus Koji Kanemoto. So, Josh, give us some background on Kendo Cashin. Yeah, so, um, you know, Kendo Cashin is kind of a very, uh, how do you say, like divisive character when it comes to um, New Japan Pro Wrestling and just kind of his overall background. Um, you know, th- this was someone. Um, he actually wrestled under two names. So Kendo Cashin was kind of like his stage name. And then sometimes he would wrestle under his actual name, which was, which was, uh, Tokamitsu Ishizawa. Uh, but he was better known as Kendo Cashin. Sometimes he would wrestle with a mask. Other times he would wrestle just as a, as himself. Um, but you know, uh, Kendo Cashin, he had a lot of experience um, prior to being in New Japan with uh, as an outstanding amateur wrestler from uh, Waseda University. Uh, he got scouted by New Japan. Big deal there was that, you know, um, this was like in the early 90s. So they brought in a lot of like top wrestlers. And, you know, that was sort of like their MO at the time. And um, he was brought in like 92. And he was trained by Kazo uh, Yamazaki. And he actually ended up defeating Eugene Nagata to win the 1996 Young Lion Cup. They sent him um, to CWA in Austria to train with Otto Vons uh, for his learning excursion in like the late 90s. And that's kind of where he uh, came up with the Kendo Cashin character. And so he came back in 97 at the Osaka Dome. Um, you know, he started like ra- like kind of rising through the ranks pretty quickly and ended up. Um, being known as like a submission guy. So like he was getting a lot of upset wins with like arm bars was like his big thing. Like he could arm bar guys from out of nowhere. And, um, 1999 was like where he got his real, real big push because that's where he faced, you know, stalwart of the, uh, division in coach Kenimoto. Yeah. So then that, uh, we talked about, well, I think, I, I think Kenimoto is the champion going into this tournament too, right? Uh, yes, he is. So that, that was a big deal. Yeah, so now we're we're to the match now. So, like you mentioned, Cashin has an amateur background. You can definitely tell that. You know, he's doing single legs and double legs. He's doing a lot of amateur wrestling takedown. Both of these guys, we've talked about Kanemoto um, in the past. With he kind of has that mix of you know strikes, amateur wrestling, some MMA, some high flying. So he's kind of going kind of hold to hold with Cashin here. They're exchanging a lot of holds here. Um, both of them kind of working for submissions in the earlier part of the match and working over body parts here. Yeah, I think the big uh, the big thing that I noticed was right away, this match has a tone of um, styles. Like, 
very similar to like an MMA match where the story is you have the grappler on the ground in Kendo Cashin. You have um, the striker in Kenamoto where like, yes, Cashin can strike, but he's nowhere near the level of striker as Kenamoto. And on the ground, obviously Kenamoto is a great wrestler, but they're selling it that he's, you know, pretty much in danger anytime he goes to the ground with Kendo Cashin. So uh, it kind of produces something very much akin to like an MMA match where like each guy is trying to implement his game to to kind of lure the other guy in. And every time like Cashin tries to strike with Kenamoto, he's getting outstruck. Every time Kenamoto decides to go to the ground, he ends up regretting it basically. Right. I mean, and the one striking sequence is that Cashin was kind of catching Koji a little bit off guard. He would bust up these European uppercuts every once in a while. Those were awesome. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. He threw some really, uh, like, hard, fucking stiff uh, European uppercuts. But even then, that was like a desperation move toward, like, in the middle slash tail end of the match where he started throwing those. Whereas, like, he'd kind of been getting schooled with the kicks and palm strikes all throughout the match prior to that. Right, and it seems like he was the heel here in the match. Um, he, I feel like he was more aggressive here, and then there was like the one kind of spot there where he was trying to trying to offer for a handshake like in the middle of the match, and like Koji was not having any of it, and it's like drop kicked him in the face. Yeah, uh, it, it was very. It was just so interesting how um, the entire tone of this match is completely different from everything we've seen in the best Super Juniors leading to this point. You know. Um, this reminded me a lot more of the style of the heavyweights, uh, you know, that, that like all throughout the nineties, like this is much closer in style to say like a Hashimoto match, you know, in 1996, as opposed to a Liger match from the early nineties. Um, and you kind of start to see them implement more of this, um, kind of like danger to the match. Like a match can end at any moment, like more of a realism, which some people may or may not be fans of. I would say in particular, I don't know how great the tournament overall was, but I actually thought this match was pretty interesting. Uh, it's not my favorite of the tournament, it, but I actually thought this one actually ended up being pretty good. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was a, a good match. I mean, overall my rating for the match was uh, 3.75. Um, so for me, definitely kind of on, the, on a little bit of the lower end on some of the stuff we've seen the last two weeks, but 3.75 is a good rating, and I thought, I mean, this was a very good match. Yeah. Um, there wasn't a lot of high spots was one thing that I noticed. Like, there's some dangerous stuff. Like, at one point, like, uh, there was a uh, cash and suplex Koji over the top rope, which we've seen a lot during the Best Super Junior Finals. Yeah, I made a note about that. And that's why I kind of said that in, like, in the, the drinking game thing. It's like, I pretty much... Like, pretty much Almost every match we've seen that one guy is trying to suplex another guy, and the other guy suplexes them straight over the top rope, and they land to the floor. But yeah, I don't know if Cashin was necessarily the heel, quote unquote, but he played the heel in this match, like you mentioned, right. absolutely. But uh, and he'd done a lot of dickish things, but once he took uh, Koji to the outside, where it really like came into view of what he was doing was like he he actually went to the outside and went underneath the ring, which we haven't seen a like hardly at all during the uh, junior finals. And he grabs this uh, toolbox and he hits uh, Kenamoto with it. And then he threw it at him and like missed. And I was like, <laughs> yo, he tried, he tried to kill Koji Kenamoto right <laughs> there. Like what the fuck? Yeah. Then he throws like, him into it. Yeah. And, um, but Koji ends up um, hitting him with like, was it 
a tiger suplex on the outside or a belly to belly, something like that. Well, I think they, they get back to the ring and then Koji hits his overhead okay. belly to belly uh, suplex and then starts going to like the final sequence there. But Ken Cashin did a lot of uh, like ground submissions, a lot of like sharpshooters, a lot of ankle locks. Um, and every time he, you could tell that the crowd was accustomed to him like finishing people with submissions because every time he got close to an armbar or got close to something like popped. The, the crowd popped huge. And it was more. It wasn't like an excitement, like oh, this we're so entertained by this, but it was like oh, this might be the end right here. Yeah, it's which I was, oh. I, yeah, like an oh. And I was like, I was like, man, the, the match was even at those moments. Like, I mean, the match was like two, three, four minutes in, and he's he going for submissions, and people think it's going to end. And I'm like, you never really saw that with those earlier super juniors. They're kind of accustomed to like you know we're getting a solid 15 minutes or whatever out of the, or 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 more out of the match and here they like totally like bought into this gimmick that Cashin could beat the guy at any moment which is surprising because koji kenamoto we've seen him in many of these finals so he's he's a pushed commodity he's a multiple time champion and you know he's the top guy from what i can pretty much gather at this point in 1999 yeah so yeah so towards the end of the match like we mentioned you know they had a spot with the outside with that steel you know toolboxing they get back into the ring. Um, Koji hits his overhead belly-to-belly belly to gain back momentum. Starts unleashing kicks on Cashin. Hits a tiger suplex and then a hoobie Which driver. I think, that's his, I think the tiger suplex is his finisher because we've seen him beat people with that already. And every time he he doesn't pin someone with it, it seems like it's a really big deal. I feel like that must be his finish. Yeah. But here he, he didn't go for the, the cover right after. So he hit the tiger suplex and then he hits the, the hoovy driver right after that. And goes for the pin after that. Gets a uh, two count there. He gets Cashin in a Boston Crab. Cashin gets to the ropes. Uh, Cashin does a, a quick uh, roll up for a near fall. Koji hits his quick power slam. And goes for the moonsault. But uh, he hits the moonsault. But he kind of like hesitates a little bit. And Cashin quickly locks well, What he in. does is he hits the moonsault. And then he's on his knees. And he rejoices to the crowd. And he like raises his hands up in victory. Like fuck yeah. It's like over. I just nailed. Yeah. I nailed this bastard. And that moment of hubris is what costs him everything yeah split and it was it was very fast it was a split second cash and locks in an arm bar um before koji could cover him uh koji gets the rope cash working on the arm now he's stomping on the arm koji fires back with several forearm smashes but then cash does a flying arm bar off the top rope and then tra- transitions into a triangle choke to get the win yeah and the first arm bar i thought he might have beat him koji gets to the ropes i'm like oh that's pretty good and then he hits, and he hit a lot of those um, flying arm bars throughout the match. But this one, he hits off the top rope. He, he has a uh, Koji in a seat position, runs up, and he hits him with the flying arm bar. And then as soon as he sinks it into a triangle choke, and like Koji goes flat, I'm like, it's oh over, my god! Yeah. <laughs> I was like, is this over? And then they call the match off. Like he got choked unconscious, and like that's the first like stoppage we've seen. In a Super Junior Finals, all the rest of them have either been like they've all been pinfalls, I believe, right? Yeah. So not only is he, he beat him, but he choked him unconscious, and he did it in like 13 minutes, bro. Like it's like the shortest Super Junior match we've seen, and I was like, wait, that was it? It's yeah. over like that? Not only that, it's like against like you mentioned Koji Kanemoto, a guy who's been clearly pushed, been in the final several times in this tournament. He's kind of the, all, besides Liger, he's one of the top you know guys in the junior division right now in this time. Period. Yeah, 
Yeah, so it, it, it's real crazy. The crowd seemed to be pretty receptive of the uh, the outcome. Um, afterwards, Ken Okashin went on to actually defeat Kenemoto for the title on August 28th, who he'd also defeated in the Best Super Junior Finals. And he becomes the first... Uh, Kenemoto became the first person to reach the final three years in a row at this point. So that's kind of like the, the fallout there. So um, Ken Okashin, and I don't think we're going to talk about him too much more, but the big thing here was that a lot of people criticized his involvement um, with being like a top junior at the time, just because most people thought that Inoki was kind of favoring guys like him and Ruse for the fact that they actually were having MMA fights around this period of time and that they were awarded their status as being top guys in the uh, division and awarded like title wins and tournament wins based off that versus their actual in-ring work. Now, I don't think Cashin was ever viewed as being the guy who couldn't completely go because as you can see in this match, he's he's okay. But he wasn't the same level as like Otani or Kanemoto or any number of juniors that were in the division at the time. And he's kind of like the 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 harbor the harbinger of like what's about to come when it comes to like <laughs> the Inokiism. Like he's yeah. the early stages of it in 1999. And um, there, here's the funny thing: there are some people that love Ken Okashin. Like there's 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 a group of uh, fans that like think he's one of the greatest juniors of all time. And there's some people like say. Joe Lanza, who fucking hates him. You know, there, there's some people who think he's the most overhyped guy of all time, and um, those of you who who are listening might recognize the name because he was recently a employee of WWE and he was helping with what was probably going to be NJ, uh, NXT Japan and was recently laid off, unfortunately. But yeah, that's kind of the the late the background there. So then, going to the Wrestling Observer newsletter for 1999, Dave says Kendo Kashin Tokimitsu Ishizawa was a surprise winner of the 11th New Japan Best of Super Junior Tournament, beating Koji Kanemoto in the finals before 13,600 fans on June 8th at Tokyo Budokan Hall. Cashin, 30, a former Olympic hopeful in amateur wrestling, who was sent to Brazil and given a submission gimmick early in his career, which turned out to be the right gimmick at the right time many years later, was established officially as a junior heavyweight title threat, beating last year's tournament winner and current IWGP champion Kanemoto 13-15 using a triangle choke submission. Cashin captured the big block with a four and one record, only losing to Shinjiro Otani, who finished with a three one and one record. Kanemoto won the A block with a four and one record, with only loss coming to Jushin Thunder Liger on the big Osaka show on five thirty one. Uh, Kanemoto clinched going to the finals on six three in Agashi Hiroshima, pinning Hamada. Liger was still alive and could have tied, forcing a playoff, but he did the job. The next night in. Takamatsu for Takaiwa. Cash and Otani were tied going into the final day with three and one records. Otani on a 6 3 went to a 30 minute draw with El Samurai, leaving a 6 6 match in two with Cash beating Wagner for armbar submission in 855 as the eventual deciding match. This year's tournament with no outside talent was considered a, th- was, was considered a threat, seemed to have the least excitement of any in the long illustrious history of new japan tournaments it is no doubt historically if you could look back at the tournament in 15 years like the 1984 tournament at this point called the wwf world junior heavyweight title tag league which included dynamite kid Dave boy smith black tiger takata the cobra kuniaki kobayashi and bret hart all of whom had runs as major stars in the business that the same wouldn't be said yeah, and I mean, if you think about it from a historical uh, perspective, I mean, 
I don't even know who Super Shocker is. I don't know who Orihara is. Um, Minoru Tanaka, um, El Samurai, Shinjiro Otani, Taikawa. I mean, there are some big names here, but I mean, it's a lot of junior names that didn't necessarily go on to do. I mean, Otani is like big fame is like zero one. Uh, Ken Okashin became like, I don't know, a freelancer. Uh, you know, Mochizuki's still in Dragon Gate. He's still like fucking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's probably still the best worker out of all these guys right now. Grant, yeah, he's absolutely right when he says that. Yeah, and uh, very interesting. Back to kind of cashing into the finals, um, we were surprised, you know, he beat um, Kanemoto quickly. He also beat Wagner quickly there on that June 6th show. Eight minutes, 55 and seconds. That And that's a huge deal, too, if you think about it, because those are the two top finalists from the 98 final, and he beat them both in short order back-to-back. Yeah, so clearly they were trying to skyrocket cash in here. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Anything else we'll on uh, 99? No, we'll go to 2000. All right, so best of Super Junior Finals, 2000. Another 12-man tournament held from May 19th to June 9th. So in the A block here, we at the bottom of two points, we had Chinya Makabe. At four points, we had Dr. Wagner Jr. Also at four points, El Samurai with six points, Koji Kanemoto. Also with six points, Grant Hamada. And then winning the block with eight points, we had Tatsuhito Takaiwa. Tatsuhito Takaiwa. Yeah, I'm going to butcher some of these names I'm not familiar with here. <laughs> um, and in the B block here, we have Minoru Fujita with two points, Kid Romeo with two points, uh, Katsumi wow. Usada with four points, Kendo Cashing with six points, Minoru Tanaka with six points, and then Shinjiro Otani with ten points, which takes us to our final on June 9th, 2000, Takaiwa versus Shinjiro Otani in Osaka Central Gymnasium in Osaka, Japan. Yeah, and every now and again, you see with these tournaments, like, uh, like there's Kid Romeo from WCW fame. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. I didn't know he was in one of these. Yeah. So, it's, that's it's, pretty crazy. It's always interesting to see who like, who are these, like, random guys that kind of fill out the blocks here. Yeah. Um, so, basically, uh, let's give you some background on Tatsuhito Takaiwa. Uh, if, if you were watching the uh, Wrestle Kingdom this past year, you probably saw him featured in the uh, retirement match of Jushin Thunder Liger. But um, basically, the deal here is Takaiwa, you know, he started with New Japan in 1992. That's uh, when he started. He actually um, was attending vocational school and then... Um, he passed the entry exam and started training with New Japan in 1992. He was part of the same training class as Otani, and the two of them like had a big feud and eventually became tag team partners. Um, he also was in the Young Lions Cup in 1993, and he finished last zero points, zero wins. And early on in, in his career, he kind of just was like an opening, like like basically like young lion guy. But around 1997, he. Uh, wrestled in the, his first Super Juniors, kind of started making a name for himself. And um, in 98-99, that's really where he took off because he formed a tag team with uh, Otani where the two of them um, pretty much ran the entire IWGP Junior heavyweight tag team scene. Like, they won the uh, titles multiple times. Um, they also, um, I think there was, like, tournament wins during that time as well. So they kind of, like, ran the block, basically. And he even ended up getting his first shot at the junior title against Liger in 98, even though he was unsuccessful. 
Um, the deal here is Taikawa was never seen as being like in ring as gifted as his other peers like Kanemoto or, you know, uh, Otani. But the deal was he was bigger than all of them. So he was kind of like the Nagata. If, if you want to like throw out a modern like example, he's kind of like the Nagata of the class, like the, the muscular, good looking, big powerhouse wrestler of the junior division. And that's kind of what brought him to the dance here. So by the time we get to this tournament, um, it's just very interesting because we end up with tag team partners in opposite blocks. They're the reigning uh, junior tag team champions at the time of this match. And they end up in the finals facing one another. Yeah, very interesting booking. I, I like that kind of booking when you have, you know, two guys in a tag team that you're kind of pushing in, you know, they get to the finals of a tournament. Like, I could see this happening down the line with Cho and Yo eventually, with both of them kind of meeting in the finals and being in opposite blocks. So, yeah, kind of a cool story here. Like you mentioned, current IWGP Junior Tag Champs meeting here in the finals. And uh, Yeah. Yeah, so we get to the match here, and, yeah, and – Keep in mind here, yeah, these guys are former tag team or current tag team champions or partners or friends, and just how this match kind of went down is kind of kind of interesting for being partners. And match starts off hot. Takaiwa hits a Death Valley driver right at the beginning, um, and I'm guessing that was one of his finishers because he hits it in the crowd, kind of like oh, and yeah, like, it is, and, it, and they just go off from there. Yeah, it's his finisher. So he literally runs off like, like jump zone. As soon as the match starts, runs off, hits this man with Death Valley Driver, goes for the the pinfall, and like he tries to get the fastest win in the history of Super Junior Finals. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but um, what ends up happening after that is Otani recovers uh, after the kickout and immediately starts attacking the legs of a Taikawa, which makes sense if you think about because Taikawa is a powerhouse wrestler. So that age-old story of like attacking the base, taking his legs from out from underneath him, and he attacks with uh, you know tons of leg submissions from that point forward going on in the first part of the match. Yeah, and then you know obviously they're kind of doing some submission exchanges back and forth here, and then there was one spot where like Otani just slaps the crap out of Takaiwa. I mean, obviously I know they're competing, but even like you know for being tag team partners, it was almost like a, a slap out of like. I don't know, maybe like a little bit of disrespect or I, I think I'm better than you. And just, he just slapped the crap out of Takaiwa. Yeah. Uh, he also started to get nasty. Uh, Otani's always been famous for, you know, the face wash spot where he has the guy in the seat position in the corner and he runs his, the sole of his boot across their face. And he did that. And it just kind of showed, like, even though that these guys were partners, like, Otani kind of knew it was at stake and he's willing to do whatever it takes really to, you know, uh, get the victory here and also i think this is his second the last time he was in the junior finals was what 95 uh otani otani yeah Yeah. i believe yeah yeah he lost to wild pegasus so this is his second uh appearance and he still has never won the super junior final so he you know that's something that he kind of needs to for his legacy kind of like check off the list so he's it doesn't matter that they're partners like he's he's kind of bringing all the heat to take out takaiwa Right, and then after the face wash is where Takaiwa kind of gets pissed off and things start getting heated up here. He's stomping on Otani's head. He hits him with a closed right hand. Um, you know, especially you know in this time period, you know the closed right hand was something that was supposed to be quote unquote illegal. You kind of get admonished for for doing it. It was seen as a, a dastardly kind of act if you're hitting somebody with a closed right hand. 
Yeah, and I think if I remember correctly, this is the correct match. The, the referee tries to get in the way and stop him, and he he pushes the referee out of the way and keeps hitting him with a uh, with uh, uh, close. In many instances, have been grounds for disqualification. So there was kind of some leeway kind of given here. Um, but you know, a lot of the early part, I do want like it is a little bit slower, but at the same time, Otani really is very good at his at his uh leg work like there he did a lot of inventive stuff a lot of drop kicks to the knee it wasn't all just holds i remember he put him in a tree of woe and he drop kicked the knee while he was in the tree of woe which was kind of uh i thought was a good spot um but really what kind of turns the tide here is taikawa strikes taikawa just starts beating you know uh the shit out of otani at a certain point in this match where he just starts like land blasting this guy yeah um, but back on, you know, you're talking about the, the spot where the ref was kind of trying to pull him back. I think that was Otani because after, because Otani starts bleeding after the right hand that Takaiwa gives him. And then eventually. Oh, so you're saying Takaiwa started hitting him with the punches at that point? So then, then Otani came back with the punches. So Takaiwa was the first one he hit, hit the close right. And eventually, and that, that busted up Otani's lip. And then Otani. Yeah, yeah. Otani, Otani got busted open and started hitting with the punches. And right. the referee tried to admonish him, and he, he didn't ma- it didn't matter to him. And that kind of goes along with the story I mentioned that Otani was willing to do whatever it took to try and win this this tournament because he never won a Super Junior before. Yeah. Uh, and there was a cool spot here. Otani goes for a plancha, but then Takawa catches him, just spine busters him, drills him down on the outside. Yeah, and that, I thought that that was very notable because there hadn't been very much high flying in this match or even the, the, the previous match. So to see someone kind of go for a plancha was a welcome uh, surprise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was pretty cool. I was glad, that, I was glad, I was glad to see a uh, plancha because I was like starting to get worried, like, are we even going to be getting those? But um, at the same time, like, yeah, when he got caught and uh, dropped, I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so eventually, you know, Kyle comes back and – Crazy spot here. So he, he gets Otani on the top, and he attempts to do a super Death Valley driver. <laughs> I was like, no way. Uh, but then, you know, Otani fights it, and then he, he tries to go for a super brain buster, but Otani reverses on the way down. And uh, yeah, he hits a dragon sweep, and a powerbomb. Then he, he hits a, a springboard capo kick. So the capo kick, that's that, that front wheel kick thing. The Liger does well. Tiny a springboard version of that kick here, and Takaiwa kicked out at one. Big uh, fighting spirit moment right there. Yeah, and then what does he hit? He hits Otani with something right after that, and Otani kicks out at one. Yeah, so he hits a, a series of lariats, and then um, Otani kicks out at one. Um, another great fighting spirit spot. That their crowd sound like they're they're behind Otani here. So then Takaiwa is up first, and he he goes for the Death Valley driver. Otani reverses, gets him in a, a leg trap ankle lock. Takaiwa fights the ropes. Otani does a springboard drop kick to the back of the head, but that just makes Takaiwa fire up, and he hits three lariats to the front, one lariat to the back, and then another lariat to the front to get the pinfall win here. Yeah, and that finish it kind of like they, they did a really, really good job building to it. And so when it got to the point, it was kind of the culmination of the match and everything of that nature. But at the same time, it, it felt like the end, but it also caught me off guard. Cause I was like, it was just a series of lariats. So I was like, okay, you know, both these guys were powering out, you know, kind of showing their fighting spirit. I, I noticed that, you know, Otani had just hit him with a really good series. So I just figured 
that the match was really starting to get good. And this was kind of like that, that turning point where it gets, it kicks into the next gear and it's like, nah, he, he laid him out with the, the, that series of lariats and, you know, hold this, hold this <laughs> L one, two, three. <laughs> and I, I was a little bit uh, surprised actually. I didn't actually think it was the end. And I was like, Oh, I guess, okay. I guess he beat him, which it, it worked, but it also kind of just, um, it threw me off a little bit. Yeah. I don't know. I got, I was really into that finishing sequence. Uh, I mean, did I, you at that point? What was that? Did you, when you saw that finishing sequence, did you think that was the end? Uh, I was kind of like uh, on the edge. I was like, oh, is, this, is this it? It kind of seemed like a finishing sequence. Like this is going to be it. Um, but yeah, from the whole fighting spirit spot, I was into that whole kind of ending sequence there. And then the layers I thought were awesome. And yeah, when it was three, I was like, oh wow, he got him there. So yeah. Yeah. I, when that happened, you know, sometimes we talk about a match going too long and then other times where, um, you know, we talk about like a match goes too long, like they pass the peak. I felt like that they were hitting the peak at that moment. And if Otani had kicked out, it would have even raised the level of this match. When he didn't kick out, it was fine, but I was a little disappointed in it. Like it wasn't that it was flat, but I was just disappointed because I, I, I was waiting for the kick out and it didn't come. And I was like, oh, it's too bad. Yeah, especially <laughs> since they, he was kind of building on the Death Valley driver. Straight from the opening bell, and then he tried to do a super right. one early. He tried it multiple times throughout the match, and the fact that it didn't finish the match was kind of interesting. That's why they should have had one of us agenting the match. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> that was the story. Yeah, two thousand, yeah, ten-year-old Jeremy and eleven-year-old Josh uh, <laughs> backstage uh, agenting this match. There were some things I really loved about the match. Um, I liked Takawa starting off with that hot start with the DVD. Um, I like the story of Otani trying to ground him and then these two guys kind of getting heated and throwing the punches and everything like that. And Otani just having trouble over like overcoming the power of Takaiwa. But there were some things like I thought the leg work was a little too pronounced and prolonged. Um, I don't think this match landed with me as high as it did for you. Um, it's still good, but for whatever reason, I actually prefer the Kendo Cashin match to this one. Wow. Okay. I was. Uh, I went four stars on this one. So a little bit higher for me on on the cashing match. Wait. Where, where where did you go on the cashing match? Uh, I, I probably the same as you. Like three and three quarters. I would have gone like three and a half on this one. Okay. I, I think there's some really really good stuff, but I also think it's very unbalanced. I think there's um, even though some of the legwork that Otani does is really inventive, it's just too long. Like it. it um, and I don't think Takai was the greatest seller either. You know, I think Otani makes Takawa look incredible. I think they put the right guy in there with Takawa being the, probably at that point the best seller in the division. Otani can get a lot of sympathy, but they spent a lot of time with Takawa grounded and Otani on top. And I felt like that was the wrong way to go because the match really only got good for me once Takaiwa completely disregarded all the legwork in general, which, by the way, he didn't sell any of it later on. <laughs> and when Otani's fighting from underneath, because that's when that's when the match gets heated, you yeah. know. When and so I mean that I, I just think that the layout of the match was a little wonky. I, I still think it's a really good match, but um, you know that that's kind of my thought. Yeah, I don't know. I was just kind of interested with the layout with it just being with being two current tag champ partners. These guys are throwing closed right fists, you know. 
face wash, boot to the face. They're trying to kill each other with top rope moves. You know, Takaiwa's spine bustering him on the outside. These guys are really kind of throwing everything at each other and showing how much they they wanted to win this tournament and get a uh, a future title shot here. So I don't know. I yeah, that was pretty cool for, for for being partners. How hard they were going at each other. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's a great story. It's the first time we've seen it in this tournament. Um, the follow up to this match, uh, Takaiwa ends up going on to defeat Jushin Liger for the title on July twenty two thousand, uh, defeating Liger for his final reign with the title, his eleventh reign, and um, Takaiwa was right in the midst of a big push. So I mean, at that point, it wouldn't be far after this match that they would drop the titles. I think that they would regain them one other time, but not long after that, they would drop the titles again. And both guys would kind of focus on their singles careers. Takaiwa was kind of in the midst of a big push at that moment. Obviously he beat Liger who was kind of untouchable at the, at the time. Um, you know, who Liger had had like heavyweight runs and everything of that nature. So I mean, it was, it was a big deal that he even beat Liger for the title and then Takaiwa ended up even going on to compete in that year's G1. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, the only thing is, I think the big issue was um, him being a power guy who's smaller than everyone else in the heavyweight division. It didn't work out so well for him. Mm. you know. Because if, if you're going to be a junior guy competing in the heavyweight division, you, you want to rely on something other than the thing that everyone else is better at than you at. you know. Right. Like When, you, when you're a small... Go ahead. Go ahead. Like, like Will Ospreay this past year, he also he was a high exactly. flyer. Not everybody else in the heavyweight division is, so he kind of used that to his advantage there. Or even like Kendo Cashin as a submission guy was able to do well in the heavyweight division at certain points. But like Takaiwa being a guy who hits people with DVDs and power moves, I mean, it. you go to the heavyweight division, everyone's already better than you at that. It, it, it never really did work out from there. I don't think his push was much prolonged going into the rest of the decade after this with – you know, at a certain point, a lot of other superior uh, juniors kind of came along, especially like the emergence of Minoru Tanaka kind of like spelled the end of his super push. But this was kind of his crowning moment. Yeah. So going to the Wrestling Observer from June 2000, Dave says Takaiwa pin usual tag team partner Chinjiro Otani in 1835 to win the annual New Japan Best of Super Junior Tournament to the finals at June 9th at Osaka Cho Gymnasium before 2002. 6,200 fans. Takaiwa and Otani, the current IWGP Junior Tag Team Champions, were named Wrestling Observer Newsletter's Tag Team of the Year in 1998 and finished third in the same balloting for 1999. They finished out Takaiwa score a pin after a Death Valley bomb and a Lariat in 1835. With the win, Takaiwa will get the shot at the IWGP Junior Champion, Jushin Liger, who pulled himself from the tournament in order to make the tournament B for the top contendership. Otani clinched the final spots and went 5-0 and in the B block round... B-block round robin beating defending champion Kendo Cashin on June 7th in Embargo for Armbar. Takaya went to the finals by virtue of a win on June 8th in Takamatsu over Grand Hamada with a finish of 4-1 and one in the B-block. One ahead of both Hamada and Koji Kanemoto who finished 3-2. and two. Kanemoto on 6-7 was pinned by Dr. Wagner Jr. that eliminated him from contention. It was a rematch of their spectacular final in the 1998 tournament won by Kanemoto. The tournament, which is Super J Cup in April, was nowhere up to the level of its predecessors due to the lack of top outside talent, particularly when WCW canceled Juventud Guerrera and Billy Kidman, although the cancellations were not unexpected. Yeah, 
So uh, that is going to do it for the 2000 um, Super Junior. So let's move on to 2001. Yeah, and one thing before we move on, we're, we're starting to see, we kind of already started seeing it last week, but we're seeing more here as Dave is kind of reviewing the stuff, just talking about how the tournament is just not the same, how it was in the early 90s or, you know, from the year before. And I guess we're starting to see some kind of breakdown here with WCW. Obviously, they, they, they pulled Hoovy and Billy Kidman here. So not a lot of guy. We're not seeing a lot of Gaijins coming in the tournaments. Yeah. Now, um, something to keep in mind, and I won't do a, a deep dive or anything of that nature, but just a couple uh, talking points worth mentioning. So, you know, prior to mid nineties, there had been shoot style, and yes, they had always portrayed themselves as, you know, these various promotions, whether it be UWF, UWFI, Rings. PWFG, all that sort of stuff. They always portray themselves as being real, but when they were portrayed in a worked environment against New Japan, New Japan, you know, Inoki believing that his style of wrestling being strong style was in essence a martial art, he would always book his wrestlers to be stronger, obviously, being that they're the bigger promotion. By the time like 1999 and 2000 comes around, you have to keep in mind what's going on at that point. You've got uh, the rise of Pancrase from the mid-90s uh, and the gain in popularity. Uh, also, Rings, which kind of moved from being a shoot-style promotion to actually being a full-time uh, fight promotion that actually did MMA. Shuto, um, and then ultimately, like all that kind of gave rise to Pride in 1997, where T- Nobuhiko Takata is the kind of the guy that they launched that off of his fight with... Uh, Hicks and Gracie, and by 1999 and 2000, the biggest fight promotion in the world is K1 and Pride, and those uh, two companies, you like at that point, Inoki can't just pretend that his style of wrestling is better and superior from a booking standpoint than those promotions, and also their influence on the general public because the public is starting to perceive wrestling as being something uh, opposite and opposed to those styles, Inoki wanted to integrate what they were doing into his thing, and him always being a mark for martial arts and different things like that. He he actually starts a partnership in the uh, early 2000s with both of those companies, hosting a series of Inoki Bombay events, and you kind of just see the, um, you know, sort of the influence of that when, when you start talking about guys like Kendo Cashin and you kind of see the changes of Koji Kanemoto style, you see it with, uh, um, we're going to talk about Minoru Tanaka. So, I mean, when, when you're watching these matches, you kind of have to understand that like MMA and kickboxing has completely overtaken Inoki's mind and the entire style of New Japan. And that's what they always talk about when they talk about Inokiism. And yes, business is not down yet the way it would be in the future, but like we're starting to see it. Yeah. We're starting to see it here. So that brings us to Best of the Super Juniors 2001 tournament, another 12 man tournament here held from May 18th to June 4th. So our tournament participants in the A blocks so at the bottom of the block with zero points, we had. Wataru Inoue, uh, with four points, we had Gran Naniwa. Also at four points, we had Chris Candido. With six points, we had Silver King and El Samurai. And then on top of the block, we had Jushin Thunder Liger with ten points. Then going over wow. to the B block, we had Katsuyori Shibata with zero points. 
Chinya Makabe with four points, Dr. Wagner Jr. and Super Shocker, and Akira with six points. And then on top of the B block with eight points, we had Minoru Tanaka. Also, um, for those of you that are not familiar, Shinya Makabe is Togi Makabe. He was a junior. <laughs> <laughs> I know, kind of hard to think about. <laughs> and um, I'm assuming here that Shibata was a, a young boy here in this tournament? Um, I believe so. In 2001, yeah, he had to have been. Yeah. So that brings us June 4th, 2001. We're once again in Osaka, Japan for Jushin Thunder Liger versus Minoru Tanaka. I almost said Suzuki yeah. there. <laughs> um, <laughs> so basically the deal with Minoru Tanaka, um, Tanaka is, his background is basically as being uh, a shoot boxer and shoot wrestler. So um, he started his career in uh, pro wrestling Fujiwara Gumi, which was the uh, splinter shoot promotion that was promoted by uh, Yoshiaki Fujiwara in the 90s. Um, and then that kind of split off into two different promotions. Like um, in 1993, a portion of the guys that were there split off and formed Pancras, which was legitimate MMA or legitimate pro wrestling. And then later on uh, in like 95, uh, the rest of the, the group led by Yuki Ishikawa left to form Battle Arts. Battle Arts was shoot style, but it was kind of like a, a westernized version of uh, shoot style. I actually love Battle Arts. It's, fucking awesome um <laughs> but um Minoru Tanaka ended up being like one of their top prodigies and very very like popular juniors uh he kind of like was not only wrestling there but also as like a uh like a freelancer he wrestled everywhere like kingdom michinoku pro rings stuff like that big japan um he also wrestled like all over like mexico and he got so popular that he'd actually even worked in new japan like he was working part-time uh, the two years prior to this, but he wasn't signed like exclusively up to this point. You know what I mean? Yeah. Very similar to like, um, in fact, I think he's a huge influence on Kota Ibushi. You can even just tell Did, from the look and the gimmick. That's exactly what I was going to say. As soon as I saw him kind of come out and start wrestling, I'm like, he, even the look, the hair, every, I'm like, this guy's like an early Kota Ibushi. Yeah. He, um, <clears throat> He ended up um, signing like exclusively in 2001, which was, uh, you know, which kind of led to the finals uh, here at the Super Juniors. But, you know, Minoru Tanaka was seen as being like the rising star in the junior division and like the top guy, like the, the future, basically. And, um, you know, he was kind of a throwback to like the shoot style, something that like Liger had kind of been the total opposite of, even though he... he you wouldn't say he's not, he, he couldn't hold himself. Like Liger is like the pinnacle of Japanese junior style. Whereas this guy is a shooter, you know? So it's complete different, like opposite, like a uh, philosophy entirely. Yeah. So we get to the match here and I really enjoy this match. Um, probably my favorite match that we reviewed this week. This match kind of, kind of return to a more kind of faster paced style matchup here is also very hard hitting. We mentioned uh, Tanaka's kind of, you know, MMA backgrounds, a lot of submissions from him as well. And overall, that was a really great match here. Yeah, I, I like the match a lot. Um, I will say this though, the version that we watched, unfortunately is clipped and we got about 12 minutes 
of what is reportedly a 26-minute match. And um, I did read a transcript of what the match actually looked like. Uh, there is a ver- there's a transcript of the match online, luckily, from a review. And apparently the majority of the, the cutout portion is revolving around um, Minoru Tanaka working over Liger's legs. So they they clipped the leg workout. <laughs> they clipped the leg workout, and it's about 14 minutes. Um, now, I will say this. This is the closest thing to a traditional wrestling match or a Western-style wrestling match that you're going to see out of the collection of matches we have here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I noticed that something was kind of weird with the edit as we were watching. I think it was, like, towards the beginning. Like, there was, like, kind of a clip and kind of, like, a weird noise. But, like, it came back, like, right away and kind of looked like nothing really got that cut out there. But... Yeah, apparently it was like, yeah, 14 minutes, <laughs> gone. Now, now Tanaka's a huge star, um, obviously, but like when you hear the pop for Liger when he comes out, it's just... Monstrous. Unfathom- yeah, it's monstrous. Like, he's so over, even at, in 2001, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, Road Warrior pop. But the, the deal here is that, um, you know, the story is that Liger hasn't won a Super Junior tournament in... I don't even know how long it's been. The last time he won the tournament was... 94 yeah yeah so i mean yeah when he beat uh super delphin so you know he's basically on his last leg he hasn't won um you know he 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 dropped the junior title he hasn't regained it and as we would later come to find out he's not ever going to regain it and so he's kind of like the old guard at this point taking on the young uprising phenom and minoru tanaka in fact this match has some similarities to some degree to like maybe say like the Ibushi Tanahashi G1 final from a couple years ago. Mm, yeah. That's a, good, that's a good callback right there. So, yeah. So like, like I mentioned a lot of, you know, hard hitting, uh, fast paced action in this matchup here. Um, crowds definitely behind Liger throughout all this, you know, anytime, uh, Tanaka would get Liger in submission. The crowd would be cheering for Liger and, you know, willing him to get to the ropes. Yeah, I mean the the match from what we saw w- was spectacular. I mean, um, granted there was uh, a lot of legwork that had been, been done throughout the match, but I mean ultimately, um, once the match really starts picking up, I mean it's it's a display of. Uh, you know, shotes and capo kicks and, you know, mid kicks from Tanaka. And these guys are just trading like huge strikes. It's actually like pretty violent. Yeah. And like, like we mentioned this, you know, 14 minutes got cut, cut out, but I still went four and a quarter on what, what we saw. Um, and yeah, that, that ending sequence was just really, really cool here. Um, so Liger hits the Liger bomb for a near fall. Uh, he goes for a shote Tanaka ducks and hits a shote of his own, but Liger quickly hits back with a shote. Uh, Liger hits a brain buster for a near fall. Um, Liger goes for another brain buster, but Tanaka reverses into a flying arm bar. Liger fights to the ropes. Liger throws a kick, but Tanaka catches it and applies a leg trap ankle lock. Liger's able to fight to the ropes once again. Uh, Liger comes back with a shote and then hits the fisherman buster and then a brain buster, traditional brain buster, to get the win here. Yeah, um, when he finally hit that... Uh that brain buster is like, Oh yeah, he's, he's done. <laughs> yeah. Um, which was like, 
for one night, Liger like kind of reversed the clock and you know put away this phenom and Minoru Tanaka. Um, from what I read from the um, the reviews, you know, they kind of talk about how the portion of the match that was cut out is actually supposed to be quite good. It's a lot of Liger kind of working his Western style mat work, and then like a minute or two, they would transition into Minoru Tanaka doing more of the shoot style sort of leg work, and them kind of like just trading styles back and forth every so often. Um, so there's kind of like a logical progression there between like, you know, the, the two styles. And this is kind of the last time you're going to see for a long time, someone representing that old guard of the nineties, taking on one of these newer shoot oriented uh, juniors. And it, 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 you know, it's a pretty emblematic type of match when it comes to that sort of thing. So what happened uh, after that, after Tanaka get, or Laga gets the win here? Yeah, so uh, with the victory, Jushin Thunder Liger becomes the first person to win the tournament three times ever in history. Uh, the first to not lose a single match during the tournament. Um, but for reasons that are unclear, Liger never received a championship match as his reward for the victory. Yeah, it's kind of weird. You think if he's going to win the tournament, he might as well book a big title match out of it and draw another house with him in the main event. Well, I know this isn't the kind of thing we say about New Japan now, but once you start talking about early 2000s New Japan, you're going to have to get used to this. Stuff just happens. <laughs> it's kind of like modern WWE. The, Stuff the booking just <laughs> is all over the place. Stuff just happens. Um, and then looking here at the Wrestling Observer, and Dave says, in a case of totally logical booking, Jushin Thunder Liger captured the Best of Super Junior Tournament for the first time since 1994 by pinning IWGP Junior Heavyweight Champion Minoru Tanaka in 2612 after a brain buster before 5,700 fans at the Osaka Faritsu Gym. Liger 36 being pushed into something of a comeback role as a number one contender for the belt. He's dominated for most of the past 11 years, went unbeaten in the tournament, and pinned the champion. Because of Liger's advancing age and Tanaka's ability, Tanaka 28 is in the position to surpass Liger as a true big name of the division, so that adds to the drama of the rivalry. Whether this match takes place on 720 at the Sapporo Dome, it isn't certain, as recently dropped Rings wrestler Mayoshi Narazu, who secretly came to terms with New Japan a few days earlier, came out before tournament final started and challenged Tanaka for a title match, which, came, which will come off as an inter- interpromotional deal and asked, for it as the 720 show, the champion Tanaka was kept strong, losing just one match in the tournament before the finals to Akira, which could have given Akira a smaller show title match later in the year in winning the B block. Um, before you continue, so Naruse is widely derided as the worst IWGP junior heavyweight champion in history. And he's one of those guys that has a heavy MMA shoot background, obviously came from rings. That's that. If you watch the version that we watched, he's the guy that comes out in the beginning of the match and is in the suit. And he's uh, on commentary during the whole match. Gotcha. I was wondering who that guy was. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. Now. Yes. Then Dave says the tournament overall was possibly the most lackluster in the long and often storied history of a tournament from a storyline standpoint. The tournament was one of the highlights of the pro wrestling year in the early 90s during the prime of Liger with his rivalries with the likes of Chris Benoit, Eddie Guerrero, Owen Hart taking high flying wrestling to the new levels. Due to changing of styles, in particular the current strengths of Liger and Tanaka, this was a more of a ground based submission style oriented. The tournament highlights were the younger Japanese wrestlers Shinya Makabe, Katsuyori Shibata, and Wataru Inui. 
losing great matches to either Liger or Tanaka. The role of the tournament has always been to create new rivals, title contenders, and stars like the first exposure uh, and elevation of Shinjiro Otani, Koji Kanemoto, Kendo Kashin, and Tetsuchi Takaiwa in previous years. Much of the luster was off the tournament this year with the lack of contenders brought in from outside Japanese promotions like Osaka Pro, Toriyomon, and Michinoku Pro to give new matchups. Aside from the luchadors from EMLL and debuting Chris Candido, the only non-New Japan regular that was Japanese was Grand Naniwa, who was an opening match jobber for All Japan and nobody took seriously as a contender. In addition, the latter four mentioned were all absent as Otani, Takaiwa, are doing the angle where they have quit New Japan for 0-1, so they build for their return. They pretty much have been kept away from New Japan for a while. Plus, Kanemoto is out after a shoulder surgery, and Cashin is off training for Pride. Yeah, that, that wouldn't go so well for Cashin, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> also, the whole 0-1 uh, angle, it winds up not being an angle. It was a shame. Ends up- <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty much the Brian Pillman thing. Like, boss, give us our release. We'll go over there, and then we'll come back. (laughs) (laughs) So the whole thing about Otani and Takaiwa being off on an angle for 0-1 ends up being, uh, you know, art imitating life. So, (laughs) (laughs) All right, so this brings us to 2002. This year we have a 14-man two-block tournament held from May 18th to June 5th. And here it goes back to the scoring system that we saw in 97-98, where it's one point for a win and zero for a loss or draw. You know, I kind of like that. It just, for simplicity reasons, I don't see why. I mean, I I guess I understand the two-point system because if you get a match that needs a, uh, you know, a half point or one point, like a draw or whatever but i don't know this the one point system is pretty is maybe even easier to understand yeah so oh so in this year's tournament in the a block coming in with one point we have Jado. uh coming with two points we have curry man who, who you will better know as the fallen angel christopher daniels coming in with three points we had a um, couple guys coming with three points we had Masahito Kakihara, Black Tiger 3, and Katsuyoro Shibata all had three points. And also, Black Tiger 3 is Silver King. Right. No, obviously no longer, Black Tiger's no longer Eddie Guerrero because he was Black Tiger 2. Um, so at the top of the A block with four points, we had Jushin Thunder Liger and Koji Kanemoto. And then in the B block on the bottom here, we had Wataru Inui with two points, Tiger Mask 4 with three points, Akira and Masayuki Narosi with three points. Gato with three points. And then on top of the block here, we had El Samurai with four points and Minoru Tanaka with four points, leading us to our final of Koji Kanemoto versus Minoru Tanaka. Yeah, so um, very, very interesting final here. So, I mean, you've got... Koji Kanemoto, who we've kind of talked about as being like the stalwart or like the the main pushed top guy in uh, the junior division at this point. Oh, one thing before we move on, I want to mention this. When Dave talks about the previous year, Liger um, having limitations, it's because by the time 2001 comes around, he's post uh, brain surgery. Mm. So, you know, his whole entire style that we saw in 94 and previous to that 
is very different to what we would see in 2001 when, and, and so on and so forth. So that's kind of what he's mentioning there. But, uh, you know, you've got Kenimoto who's like the, the main guy and then Tanaka, who's kind of like, you know, he's been champion. In fact, I think Kenimoto and Tanaka were junior champions together and ha- and like were former tag partners as well. So, um, you kind of have like the main guy versus, you know, the, the future star and ace, Right, and here it seems like Kanemoto is now a heel. Um, he's he's aligned with Gato, and he's you know he's all black. And different, he's he's actually Team Two Thousand at this point. Gotcha. Definitely you know, a different demeanor than we've seen in the past here. And then obviously Mono Tanaka here is coming in as this you know the baby face kind of the guy. Like we, we heard in the Observer last year, you know Tanaka's kind of a guy that they're trying to push as a new top guy, and so. You have this, you know, new top Bayface guy coming in to take on, you know, the kind of the heel grizzle veteran, the guy that's kind of been on top of these tournaments for the past several years, Kanemoto. Yeah, so him and um, Minoru Tanaka in the early 2000s, they had a tag team called the Junior Stars, and so they'd had like lengthy IWGB Junior Tag Team runs prior to this, so they knew each other very, very, very well. And um, but yeah, Tanaka ended up joining. Chono's uh, Team 2000 stable, which was kind of like the fallout of NWO Japan. So, yeah, when he left, he kind of was, you know, aligned with Gato, Jado, and Akira, that sort of thing. So, yeah, he, he's full heel at this point. And him and uh, Tanaka obviously have heat because Tanaka's still face at that point. Yeah. So, yeah, then we get to the matchup here. And uh, obviously, both of these guys have. You know, grappling and striking backgrounds, like we've mentioned in the past here. So we do see a lot of uh, a lot of striking, a lot of submission, a lot of grapple attempts, a lot of suplexes and uh, throws. Um, and of course, you know, Kanemoto throughout the match would always kind of go for his his moon salt and his corkscrew. Um, you know, sentons throughout the match. There, kind of we we've been seeing in the past here. Uh, yeah, this this match was okay for me. Like. As I mentioned, we're starting to see an inclusion of shoot style kind of mixed in with the classical, like strong style of New Japan. Here's here's my thing. I love that stuff when it's done at a really high level. So, for instance, maybe say like a Kyle O'Reilly, for instance, you know. But um, I don't like it when it's not. I would prefer if they're going to do shoot style to kind of like instead of them continuously breaking my disbelief, just go full into it. Or not at all. Yeah. And he and here is kind of, in my opinion, of these five years that we're reviewing. This is, I would say, right. I don't know. Maybe along with Otani Takawa, this was probably like my least favorite of the matches that we watched. Yeah, I mean, I I, I went three seven five on this one. Um, yeah, it's in that three and a half, three seven five range. Probably got a little yeah. Kanemoto bump for me. Uh, Kanemoto's great and actually both guys are great I like Minoru Tanaka a lot too but I went three and a half on this thing yeah I mean like you mentioned it's just a lot kind of that transition into the shoot style and like you mentioned they're not really going all in on it like making it fully believable so it kind of throws you out of it a little bit right like when guys do it at a high level um, it can be really 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 great but when it gets kind of lazy and they're kind of just laying in the moves and feeding each other, you can really see them feeding the uh, submissions and stuff like that. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Now the strikes were great in this match. Yeah, so I was about to say, like my favorite thing in this match were the strikes. We had a couple um, James Boyd kick spots where they like both kick each other in the head. 
Lost the moment that happened, I wanted to gift that, and I was like, I need to gift this uh, double kick to the head so I can uh, uh, share it in our group chats because it's like one of the best double like head kick spots you'll ever see. Yeah, it was awesome. Uh, we had some Gato involvement. Uh, he's trying to distract the ref there and knock, ends up knocking him off the apron. Um, is this the last, is this the first time we see, um, red shoes? Because up to this point, I think it'd been all Tiger and Tori, or is that the next match? That's the next match. Okay. So this is, this is the, uh, up until this point, we've seen Tiger and Tori referee every single junior finals, including this one. And, uh, the next year we're going to see red shoes emerge. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean. The one thing I did notice, Tanaka continuously goes for the armbar. He goes for the uh, flying. He's like spamming the flying armbar. Yeah. Which, like, it's cool. But like, you know, I think of someone who who does it really well. Like, say, um, Nakamura used to do that spot a lot in big matches. Uh, Kushida. Say, Kushida, and they'd kind of save it for like an important moment. But like, Minoru Tanaka's like, nah, bump that. He start he's throwing it like it's a V trigger or something. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, yeah, he was co- yeah constantly going after the arc, constantly doing that flying, rolling arm bar. Um, you know, Kanemoto is trying to go after the legs and trying to do the ankle lock. That was kind of one of his um, submission finishers, uh, which kind of takes us to the end of the match here, where um, Kanemoto reverses a kick and locks in the bully choke. He then transitions into hitting a tiger suplex and then locks in a dragon sleeper. And then he transitions from that into the ankle lock. Tanaka gets to the ropes. Uh, Kanemoto hits his quick scoop slam, goes for the moonsault, which gives him a near fall. Then he quickly locks in an ankle lock. Tanaka reverses with a schoolboy, and then a backslide. And then Kanemoto kicks him in the head, hits a dragon suplex. One, two, three. Kiyoji Kanemoto is your winner here. Yeah, which... um... I mean, I don't know all the booking decisions, but we'd seen Koji Kanemoto win multiple. Well, we, what he's won. This is his second win, I guess, at this point. Yeah, he's been in multiple finals. He's been in multiple finals. This is the second time he's won, and I was just a little surprised by that because I I thought Minoru Tanaka was kind of the guy they're pushing there, but uh, yeah, I mean, and he beat him kind of clean too. So yeah. I mean, there's definitely like some some dirtiness and griminess to what he's doing, but I was just a little surprised. So um, after that, the aftermath here, um, two-time winner Koji Kinemoto goes on to defeat the champion Minoru Tanaka for the title on July 19th. So not only did he beat him in the finals, but he takes the title from him a few months later. Uh, the same man he defeated for the final of the tournament. Uh, the Black Tiger who wrestled in the 2002 event was not Eddie Guerrero, who had pre- previously participated in the tournament, but was luchador silver king so those are kind of the fallout notes there and then going to the wrestling observer koji kanemoto's win over iwgp champion Minoru tanaka on 6-5 at osaka ferusu gym ended from a business standpoint the weakest best of the super junior tournament in history kanemoto used a dragon suplex in 14-12 to pin tanaka before 5,200 fans which as is more often not the case will be used to build up a tanaka versus kanemoto title defense on 7-19 in sapporo the finals didn't sell out last year after being a guaranteed sell for at least the finals during most of its history and for most of the tour during the heyday of the tournament. The tournament, which was once one of the real highlights of the year in wrestling, has faded greatly. As mentioned, part of the problem is the creation of parody. In the early years of the tournament, there were genuine junior heavyweight superstars. 
most notably Jushin Liger, and to a lesser extent, Chris Benoit. Tournaments told a story. Young guys would be elevated with an upset win, and there would be a purpose. Plus, the tournament would bring in newcomers and create dream matchups. There was only one real newcomer this year, Curry man Christopher Daniels, who's a charismatic good worker, but is not even a superstar in the much smaller Michinoku Pro group. Tiger Mask from that promotion also worked a tour, and he's one of the most gifted workers in the business, but again, he's not a hot young wrestler on the rise. Black Tiger, formerly Silver King in Mexico and WCW, is one of the best bell-to-bell workers in the game, but from the tapes I've seen, all were adapting a style where they would have good matches. Whether it's due to the knowledge of the eventually uh, of the eventually of injuries when doing a style that propelled the division or a lack of enthusiasm one gets while working for promotion, it doesn't appear to have any direction. It was good matches where great ones used to be with wrestlers who you can clearly tell are most cases still great, but the lack of interest was not work rate related. It was stale related. There was nothing new to getting excited about as a newcomer was shaking up the ranks. Perhaps a tournament could have been more interesting upon using wrestlers from Toriyaman or introducing an American with a unique style and giving them a push low key. In the end, it was wrestlers trading wins with parody setting, noted by so many guys finishing with three and three records. They are trying to do an insider angle with Matsuhori Chono, claiming that since Kanemoto won the tournament, he can book the junior heavyweight division, Mintic Man heel, maker, heel matchmaker gimmick, and that Jushin Liger would be put in opening matches. Yeah, and that's something that kind of plagued them in that time period, was them starting to kind of... Um, experiment with Western. I mean, the whole NWO Japan thing and the stable, um, you know, kind of set up like that's kind of where the the major, you know, stable system kind of comes from is like those late '90s, early 2000s, which now it's great, but at the time was very like Western influenced, and some of those storylines kind of just don't mix, and they don't mix well with how uh, New Japan had been, you know, established prior to that. Yeah. Yes, yeah, it just sounds like crazy just reading this stuff and watching back and just kind of seeing the direction the company was heading in here. But as we watch each final, we can kind of see how, like, we're we're talking about these five years here and, like, they're good but not great. And that's exactly the words that uh, Dave used there. He's like, you know, there's good matches where great ones used to be, and that's kind of what we're finding in this project. Uh, some pretty good matches, but, you know, this, it, it's not the level of star level. It's not the same level of story. It's not the same level of work. Yeah. And so our last match for this week's episode of the final countdown, Best of Super Juniors from 2003. This was a 14-man two-block tournament that was held from May 23rd to June 11th. And it introduced a new system of scoring, or, or getting to the finals, I should say, where each of the block's two top scorers would advance to a semifinals and then those two would kind of face off. So it was kind of similar to that system that we saw earlier on where you would have the, two, the top two guys kind of facing each other right. in the semifinals, which would lead to the finals, which we do get here a finals of two guys, the top two guys from the B block. Um, so in the tournament this year, coming with zero points, we had Rizuke Taguchi. With uh, four points, we had Gato and Ebasan. Uh, with, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, with eight points, we had Minoru Fujita, Jushin Thunder Liger, Takashi Sugira, and on top of the block with 10 points, we had Akira. And then in the B block with four points, uh, Jado, El Samurai, Stampede Kid, 
with six points, uh, Masayuki Narusi with eight points, Tiger Mask four, Masahito Kakihara, and Koji Kanemoto also with eight points. Interesting note: Stampede Kid is Tyson Kid. Oh, okay, I didn't I didn't realize that. Yes, that's where the Stampede comes from. If you think about it. Ah, yeah, Stampede Wrestling makes a ton of sense here. Yeah, uh, I didn't know he was in these. I, I saw it. I was like, "Who's Stampede Kid?" And I looked, and I was like, "Oh, it's Tyson." It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah. So what ends up happening here? We uh, the top point earner in the B block, or I'm sorry, in the A block, uh, Akira ends up losing to the B two uh, point earner from B block in Masahito Kakihara. So Kakihara goes on to the finals, and then uh, Takashi Sugiura which is kind of crazy that he was even a junior back then. But yeah, uh, Sagira loses to Koji Kanemoto from the B-Block. So we end up, like Jeremy mentioned, with an all-B-Block final in Kakihara versus Kanemoto. Yep, so this happens June 11, 2003. We're in City Gymnasium in Kyoto, Japan, for Best of Super Junior 10. Yeah, and um, before we start, let's talk about Masahito Kakihara, who... Um, is just awesome. In fact, some of you will remember him from a couple years ago when uh, he was the surprise entrant in the last New Japan Rumble at Wrestle Kingdom, and he kind of came out of retirement and you know came in at number thirty and ended up winning that uh, in like a very uh, kind of inspirational <laughs> sort of moment. But um, the deal here with Kakihara is that he started with. Uh, the second iteration of UWF back in 1989. And he kind of made his uh, debut with the UWFI like a year or two later. So he was like an apprentice of Nobuhiko Takata. And he kind of just worked there like primarily all throughout the 90s. He also uh, worked with like War and Battle Arts and, you know, Kingdom Pro Wrestling. So you're kind of, um, as listening to this, you're kind of learning about these other smaller promotions in the 90s that these guys sort of worked with. But um, uh, from like 98 to 2001, um, he was working for Kingdom, which was like the company that succeeded UWFI. And they had a partnership with All Japan. So he was actually working for All Japan primarily leading up to uh, 2001. And in 2001, he debuted for New Japan Pro Wrestling. Obviously, with Inoki looking for shoot-based wrestlers, Kakihara was kind of like at the top of his list because he was one of the best like shoot stylists at the time, especially in the junior division. And um, he was like basically thrust into the top of the junior division like almost immediately. Like, um, you know, he'd kind of been like a mid-carder in other companies up to this point. And then suddenly, like in 2003, like he's at the top of the super junior. So like the one good thing here is they're kind of, New Japan, like we kind of talked about how the previous year there had been a lot of parody. This is a, a chance for them to sort of make a star in Kakihara. And that's exactly what they do. It's like they blast him to the top of the list when it comes to the Super Junior Tournament. Right. And he's in there with Koji Kanemoto, guy that's been in several finals, has won the tournament twice. So if you want to put a guy over, Koji's a great guy to get somebody in there with. Yeah. Uh, and outside of this, Eventually, in 2006, Kakihara would uh, announce his retirement due to spinal injury and eventually ended up getting um, cancer. And he beat that cancer and uh, recovered. They And so he's kind of like a semi-retired professional wrestler at this point now. Right. So that brings us to the match now. Like you mentioned, this is the first match that we see uh, Red Shoes Uno is refing the match here. So... 
the, the kind of rise of Uno here. Um, the crowd seemed um, behind Kanemoto here. He's the guy that they know, um, the veteran that's been in these tournaments. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah, um, this match, a uh, couple things. So like you mentioned, Red Shoes, uh, refing for the first time. Also, the uh, the quality of this tape is impeccable. Um, by far, one of the best... Uh, we, we actually got it off Daily Motion, but it's one of the, the best quality um, versions of a, of a New Japan match that I've seen from that time period ever. It's actually better than many of the like current day matches I see on new Japan world as crazy as that sounds. Yeah. Yeah. It was really good quality. It was uh, 60 frames per second. Yeah. Really kind of crisp uh, footage there for that. Oh, three match. Yeah. It was, it was kind of nice to kind of get that change, uh, you know, pace there. Um, but I'll say this, this is my favorite match of the five matches that we are recording here or, uh, you know, or reviewing, like I think, thought that this match really just delivered yeah this would be my second favorite following to knock a liger uh, uh watching it i knew you're gonna like <laughs> uh liger to knock it better than this <laughs> yeah but, but just, just a little bit i went four and a quarter on liger to knock i went four stars flat here at this one yeah so the, the the cool thing with this match is this is the first full like we are full in on shoot style which you know it's not everyone's cup of tea but when it's good, it's really good. And I think that this is a really good shoot-based style uh, match. I did think you would like it just because your background with uh, um, amateur wrestling. And I thought that these guys you know, were pretty believable when it comes to their ground grappling. It's, it's just very, you know, if you're going to watch this match, I will say it's very different from what you will probably come to expect from wrestling in modern times like they're pretty much just what we call rolling the same thing you'd see like in a jiu-jitsu gym or uh you know maybe like on the wrestling mats uh something of that nature and um these guys and one thing i love is like they're just trading leg locks over and over and over again which was something that you saw a lot in like 90s mma and these guys are just fucking each other's legs up which is pretty cool yeah i mean the opening sequence is pretty much flawless they're Switching between submission holes, a lot of very good chokes, leg submissions, kind of a, you know, quick kind of exchanges, fighting for control. Um, you know, you have guys they're doing they're doing triangles, they're trying to fight for a full mount. You know, Kanemoto gets them in the guard, so it's, it's almost like you're watching like an MMA fight for a little bit here in the opening match. You know, going for arm bars and stuff like that, and uh, it was really good action there. Yeah, as. I, I know that there are some people out there that don't like shoot style for various reasons. And, I, and sometimes I don't either, you know, I'm not like someone who stands for it, but um, I've heard people be like, you know, keep that MMA crap out of my wrestling, you know? And they're like, if I want to watch MMA, I'd watch MMA, you know, I'm, I'm here for the pro wrestling. But I always think that that's kind of an uneducated viewpoint because people just don't realize that MMA is wrestling and wrestling is MMA. And, you know, as much as there is a distinction between them because the worked and shoot nature of them, they're so intrinsically combined into one another because their roots are the same. Yeah. <laughs> that like they're literally the same sport. It's just the per the, the way they're presented is totally different. And I say that to say this, like when you see um, 
people doing pro wrestling that is shoot influence, but they do it on a high level. It can be really great. And I thought that this was really great. Uh, it's not everyone's cup of tea, but these guys never like, they're not sitting there like just laying in a bunch of holds. Like they're working at, this is what I'd call work rate shoot style match. Like very, very, very fast paced. Like this is like a junior shoot style match. And, uh, it's pretty cool actually. Yeah. And like, yeah, like you said, like these guys, it's not like, Sitting in a hole, you know, these guys are going hold, hold, exchange, exchange, working for control, working for the next submission. So, yeah, cool kind of stuff there. And of course, with Koji, we see a, a lot of his signature stuff. We see the corkscrew sent on the, the face wash combo that he always does. We've seen a lot of that. Yeah, the drop kicks, the running knee to the face, everything like that. And because he's Team 2000 and heel at this point, like he also uh, he's kind of departed from the classic look of him just wearing the uh, straight black boots, straight black uh, tights. He's kind of got a more colorful, um, more almost like MMA-based like attire at this point. So even he's kind of come to like embrace the shoot-style nature of things. You kind of notice that, but... Um, he's super heelish in this match. In fact, at one point he just like straight up slaps red shoes. Yeah. <laughs> which I was like, I was like, man, this man, red shoes stay getting like disrespected like forever <laughs> from day one. But these guys, um, not only was the, 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 um, grappling really good, but the striking was just awesome. Like the mid kicks, the knees, the elbows, like they're, it's just, this, this felt like a real fight. Like it's really cool. Yeah, and Kakihara, he was delivering some nasty strikes to Kanemoto's face at one point throughout the match here. Uh, we had a, another James Boyd kick spot um, in yeah. this match. Uh, yeah, and there, there there was a lot of, um, towards the end, a lot of like big tosses. Uh, there was, Someone got German down their head. I think it was Kakihara. I can't remember. Yeah, uh, so it was Ken, Kakihara's German Kanemoto. Okay. Yeah, he dropped the man right on his head. <laughs> Yeah, but um, I think the big um, turning point in this match was when Kakihara like avoids some of the offense of um, Kanemoto, and he hits the first big STO, and uh, that was that. Yeah, so they they hit each other with the double kick, and then Kakihara does like a fighting spirit out of it, hits him with an STO, and from that point on, even though Kanemoto's in it, Kakihara is kind of on top and just looking for the kill, and it's sort of. I like that because it reminds me of like again uh, a true fight where like someone gets hurt and you kind of have the guy stalking the the hurt fighter mm-hmm. and Kakihara after he hits that first STO he goes for the one the uh, pinfall um, you know Kenamoto kicks out and then from that point Kenamoto goes on the ropes and Kakihara is just looking for a finish and he just starts basically laying everything he can on Kenamoto at the end of the match. Yeah, so like you mentioned, yeah, Kanemoto's kind of in the danger zone here. He's like, I need to do what I can to finish this guy. So he goes for the dragon suplex, which he's won in the past. Uh, he falls up with the ankle lock, which is kind of his you know, submission hold there. But Kakihara is able to get to the ropes. And they have a strike exchange, and Kanemoto you know, picks the leg, jumps on it. He goes for his combo here, the quick scoop slam into the moonsault. You know, old faithful, but Kakihara gets the knees up. Um, Kakihara kicks him to the back of the head. Suplexes him, German on the head, kicks him in the head again for a near fall. There's another strike exchange of kicks and chops. Kakihara wins, hits him with a leg lariat, a shining wizard for a near fall. That shining wizard's awesome. Yeah, it was amazing. And then he does a Rainmaker STO, the ripcord into the STO, picks him up, hits another STO, one, two, three. 
Kakihara is your 2003 Best of Super Junior winner. Yeah, I loved it. I, I thought this was really, really, really good. Um, the aftermath, uh, Kakihara would go on to unsuccessfully challenge the reigning IWGP Junior Champion Tiger Mask 4 on July 6th, despite having beaten him in the tournament. And um, you mentioned that Dave didn't have any notes on this match in the archive. Yeah, for whatever reason, uh, for t- 2003, there is no June um, archives uploaded for that year for whatever reason. So, yeah, I couldn't find anything of Dave Sotland there. There's, we're also going to get to a point where Dave very rarely starts talking. Like, his coverage of New Japan starts to get very sparse. You know what I mean? Like, um, major things get covered. But things that are less important, like maybe some of these junior um, finals, you're not going to see so as, as much text on it. Because, I mean, there's only so many times he can come out here and be like, this is this was commercially one of the least successful tournaments right. they've ever had. Uh, these guys, you know, this was not as, you know, he just keeps comparing them to the 90s and they, they don't match up. Right. But, um, yeah, I... Again, final thing. If I had to give you guys a match recommendation, I would say the Kakihara Kenamoto match from this week was really was the one that I loved the most. Everything was good, but that was the only one that truly got into great territory for me. And I think for for you, Jeremy, you liked the uh, one from a couple years prior. Yeah, I liked uh, Lager and uh, Tanaka. I mean, I like this match too. I would definitely tell you to go out your way to watch this match and the Lager Tanaka. Um, and like I mentioned, I have a list of all the links that I will be tweeting out. They will also be in the description for the show. It's in the Discord, uh, Social Suplex Discord channel for keeping it strong style. So you can follow along with us, watch those matches. I will update those docs for the next set of matches that we'll be covering for next week as well. If, if you guys are listening, 2005 and 2008, please, whatever, whatever back channel methods you guys have to get to whoever you need to talk to if you have friends who have archived footage or have something on a hard drive somewhere anything like we need 05 and 08 yeah (laughs) so please uh, help us out everybody that's been helping us out so far thank you so much for your help and getting us uh, the footage that was hard to find so appreciate all all the help we've been getting there also put some money in our red circle (laughs) (laughs) We out here doing the damn thing. Socialsuplex.com slash donate. Uh, click on that, that <laughs> keeping a strong style uh, button right there. So but last, that's, gonna, that's going to do it. Uh, Jeremy, you want to take us to our recommended match? Yeah. So first off, uh, last week you recommended uh, Steve Wright versus Tiger Mask. And so I did watch that match. And I, I think you might have shown me this match before. Uh, I think I've shown you, shown you some clips, but not. I never made you watch the match. Gotcha. Yeah, well, it was pretty awesome just to see, like, we talked on the phone about this, but yeah, Steve Wright is out here, he's doing, you know, the, the Brit Rest stuff, man, the Tyler Bate, uh, you know, your Pete Dunn, all that kind of stuff, the quick, like, head, you know, kip-ups and cartwheels and quick submission holes, and this guy is, like, wrestling circles around Tiger Mask, which you yeah. weren't really seeing at that time, so it's like, and Steve Wright, obviously, he's, he's the father of Alex Wright. He trained Alex Wright. He trained a, a lot of other top um, UK stars. I believe he trained William Regal as well. So Steve Wright's not normally a guy you really hear about. I mean, you hear a lot about his students and his son, but um, this guy was a great worker and just 
the stuff he was doing in that time period and the holes and the and the flips and the cartwheels, his his selling was awesome. He made freaking Tiger Mask look like a star. I mean, Tiger Mask was the star, but he he was selling like crazy for this guy. Um, it was good. He makes Tiger Mask look really good in the match and also makes him look really bad in the match all at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> like it, it is crazy with how innovative um, Sayama was, how fast he was, and how innovative he was. When you compare it to like the classical technical style of a master like Steve Wright, and I think Steve Wright's one of the best wrestlers that we have so little actual real footage on, but every time I've ever seen him, I'm like, holy shit like he also went by the name of bull blitzer but like just steve wright fucking rules and uh he he's one of the few guys ever that like went in there and kind of embarrassed ayama um and he didn't embarrass him but he just he works at a much higher level yeah (laughs) than the original tiger mask at the time which is 82 and um yeah i mean there there are some people in the world that could do what he did but steve wright was man like a lot of the stuff that people think is cool and modern today, he was doing in 1982, and it's just nuts. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely check that out if you haven't checked it out yet. But the recommended match of the week for this week, we're venturing off of New Japan World this week. We're venturing off of New Japan, quote-unquote, so to speak, this week. Uh, this week's recommended match is coming from WCW Halloween Havoc 1997, and it's a matchup between Yuji Nagata, accompanied by Sonny Oto, versus Ultimo Dragon. Yeah, uh, I can't wait to watch this. I know they had a two-match series, uh, both the Halloween Havoc and then the World War Three match from that same year. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's been a while since I've seen that match. So, yeah, really fun match. Check it out. It's on the WWE Network. I'm sure you can find it on YouTube. If you're not a network subscriber, don't want to subscribe to the network. And that's going to wrap things up for this week. Next week, we'll be back with all this news. We'll answer your questions, and we'll have another final countdown segment for you. If you enjoyed today's show, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation by visiting socialsuplex.com slash donate. Click on the donate button under the Keeping It Strong Style logo. Make sure you connect with us on social media. The show is at KI Strong Style. You can also follow us at Social Suplex. You can follow me at Jeremy L. Donovan. On Facebook, we are Facebook.com slash Social Suplex. Also find us in the Wrestling Squared Circle Facebook group, Facebook.com slash group slash Wrestling Squared Circle. On Instagram, we are at Social Suplex. On Reddit, I am the Pro Black Guy. Josh is Keeping It Strong Style. You can email me, Jeremy, at socialsuplex.com. Check out our Discord server, Social Suplex. Got channels for all the shows on there and for different promotions. But check out all the other shows on the Social Suplex Podcast Network. On Sundays, we have One Shade Radio, hosted by Rich Latta and James Boyd. On Wednesdays, we have the Rookie and Clive Wrestling Show from Scotland. Every other Wednesday, we have our podcast dedicated to independent wrestling. Grown men watch this shit, hosted by Jeremy Tate and Chris Bryan. On Fridays, we have Get in the Ring with Danny and Beast Mike. And Saturdays, we have All Things Elite with Floyd Johnson Jr., Amy, and Tiffany. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a rating, and review. And we will catch you next week on Keeping It Strong Style, the ace of podcasts. Stay safe, wear a mask. Sayonara. Thank you for listening to Keeping It Strong Style. We'll see you next time.